See, I just make Rob edit out my mouth breathing. <laughs> yeah, but that's a lot of work, and I don't want to put him through that. <sighs> yeah, I mean, you listen to like, you know, three hours of that two or three times over. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, uh, that's why Rob makes the big bucks. Yeah, that's I, why. I, I do? What? <laughs> Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Undergopher Network, Warhammer 40k podcast. I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. And we are all back together here. Well, Kevin is still remote, but all four hosts are together on the same show again. (laughs) So uh, we are continuing with this is episode 183, and this one's kind of a twofer. Our first half, uh, besides news and new releases, what the big news we'll be talking about is the the big FAQ and, and what it might mean for you. And then in our second half, we are going to be talking with Alex Hunt for a Hobby 201. We did Hobby 101 with Alex and uh, Danny a few months back, and that was covering uh, basically tips on painting your army. This time, we're going to go a little bit more advanced and talk about airbrushing techniques. Uh, but first, as always, news, news releases, and then your listener mail. And again, the big news was that near the end of September, still within that 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 boundary that they had set for themselves of big FAQs come out in March and September. They they pushed back the April the March one to April because of Adepticon, and there was some concern that they would do the same thing because of Nova Open. But they did manage to get it in under the wire, and uh, in late September, big FAQ two hit. Um, we'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, because I, I want to take some time that we're not distracted by. Oh, and by the way, other things came up. But oh, by the way, other things are coming out. Um, Speed Freaks is up for pre-order now. Yes. So we have like the new orc buggies, which it looks like it's is it one kit that makes all the buggies, and they put two of those kits in the Speed Freaks box. Uh, I haven't actually gotten a chance to to look into it too close, um, but I. I want to say it is the same kit, but I don't know. Or is it? There, I think there are actually maybe two kits, and that I there's think it only is two one. kits because I was looking at it. It's the uh, shoot. I was looking at this earlier today. Now I don't have the page open. Or no, wait, they said that they have the rules for like all six buggies the, in there, yeah, but the it doesn't include all, all the buggies. Yes. So it's the custom uh, Boosta Blitz uh, Blasta, custom Boosta Blasta. Say that five times fast. (laughs) That five times fast. I hate orc names, by the way. Just (laughs) Uh, so it's the custom booster blaster buggy, and then the shock jump dragster, and then so those two in there, and then it's six war bikers that come in the box, and then the other some of the other kits that you can make out of it. I guess are going to be coming out later. So I'm wondering, maybe it's going to be three kits that each makes two buggies. Maybe. Maybe so, yeah. Because yeah, otherwise, I mean, you're talking six different SKUs for various stores to keep on the shelves. Which, I mean, I'm still boggled that the Armagers are in two separate boxes considering they're damn near identical. Yeah. Right. But Well, looking at the two that come in here, I don't think they're made out of the same kit. They The bodies and stuff look 
Are a they lot different. significantly different? Yeah. So I, I think these are two separate sprues. Now they may be able to eventually make something else out of them, but I don't, well, maybe I don't know. Okay. So here, all right, we've got a list of, so just coming up, this is also new news. Uh, as of today, next week, the codex you've been waiting for, the Orc Codex goes up uh, for pre-order in a week. So on October 27th, Orc Codex goes up for pre-order, and they mention that need some fast-moving armor capabilities to grab yourself a Megatrax Scrapjet. How about some extra DACA? Look no further than the Boom DACA Snaz Wagon. Can't choose? Bombard your enemies with a variety of exploding squigs fired from the Rocket Truck Squig Buggy. <laughs> In fact, thanks to the Death Killer War Trike, you can field an army consisting of only orc vehicles. So it sounds like there's possibly three separate kits that each make two. And so they've probably got two of one of those kits in Speed Freaks. So it, they are different kits. I'm looking at the sprues and they're they're completely different. OK, because they do finally ha- I was able to get up, pull the page up and look at the sprues They're so one's in yellow plastic, one's in red plastic. Not that that matters. Right. But they the so it's it's two sprues of the the war bike the uh, war bikes. Uh, I guess three sprues because those sprues are very sparse. Um, and then it's one sprue that makes each of the different buggies, and they're massively different. Okay. So yeah, they're they're two completely different kits. All right. Yeah, looking at the pictures, I mean, like a lot of them just have drastically different wheels by themselves right Mm -hmm. so yeah and the like the bot like the body for the scrap jet is basically a cylindrical engine with wheels strapped to it whereas the others look like cars or trucks that have been modified but even those two are different styles of body so yeah so there's at least three different kits Possibly mm-hmm. more, so we'll see. And then, yeah, the the, the war trike I'm pretty sure is its own kit. Yeah, the war trike is definitely its own kit. It looks very different from the others. And also, we're getting a mech boy work workshop uh, fortification. Yeah, nice. That sounds awesome. Which it's basically like a, a an, an old rusted steel like armature with like a big robot arm on it and an engine on a on a chain block. Well, we've been asking for more terrain. Yeah, so th- so they're well, getting well, a fortification type terrain. Yeah, and then we're getting orc dice because, of course, yes. I I hope they're better than the space wolf dice. <laughs> well, and th- these have a skull on the six and a skull on the one, but the huh. skull on the six is an orky skull glyph with uh with wrenches coming out of it, as opposed to the normal skull glyph that is the one. Because GW can't quite figure out dice. So, so what, what's right, the two, right. three, four, and five? Uh, they are little like normal pips. Two hat? No, not no. normal pips. They're like two little scratch marks, three scratch marks, four uh, scratch. Okay, so the claw marks for the space wolves, scratch marks for the orcs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. No. I miss the old because like they're the objectives that came with the seventh edition collectors like codex. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. literally just had like the orc glyphs for numbers which are like one. roman numerals right. essentially see that sounds cool yeah these are not that yeah these which... aren't even that cool <laughs> they're also brown they're not okay. even green they're just bra- they're brown are, are the well, pips green no i mean i kind of have enough green dice i think 
well, well, between orcs and Nurgle? enough <laughs> dice is is a oxymoron anyway. But. Yeah, I'm like no, you don't. <laughs> yeah, so we the, uh, the dice are kind of kind of underwhelming, and then we get uh, Sly Marbo comes back. You can get Sly Marbo <laughs> again next Ooh. next week. Okay. I mean, yeah. I think our games workshop still had one <laughs> sitting on right. the shelf. He's so popular. <laughs> yes. Unlike Eisenhorn, who flew off the shelves, and I guess the the Primaris and you the... can still buy like the 30th anniversary Primaris Lieutenant. They still have one yeah. on the shelf at the GW store here. Yeah. So our store, so the store here in Phoenix, and I'll jump in. So I was going to save this for Happy Progress, but the store here in Phoenix sold out of those in like 10 minutes. So I had to order. I had to place an order, and they're going to send me them. Uh, I was able to find an Epidemus on the uh, on the on the shelf, so I picked that up, which I don't think I'd ever seen one of. Those now you're talking the 30th season. anniversary or the 500 store celebration? Oh, the five. Sorry, the 500 store one. No, sorry, I'm yeah, referring not- to the 30th anniversary Primaris Lieutenant that came mm-hmm. out last year. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah, still okay. one of those on the shelf. I could, yeah. I, there's a bunch of those around in stores here yeah. if I want to pick one up. <laughs> yeah, I think the 500 store opening here sold out as oh, well. Oh, they sold out. Yeah, yeah fast. Yeah. Because Richard was in line. Yeah, yes. Rich, Richard was in line before the doors opened. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I showed up later in the day, and they're like, yeah, we can order you one, but that's it. Yeah, they're nifty looking. Yeah. I definitely... Yeah. I I'm I'm I have one ordered, so I'll, I'll, I'll get my own Primaris Lieutenant with Stalker Bolter, or Stalker Bolt Rifle in a couple of weeks. So, let's see. So, yeah, we've got Orc Codex coming out soon. Speed Freaks is up for order. Kill Team Commanders just came out. Yes. Which yep. uh, basically takes some of the stuff they did in Rogue Trader with having leader level characters and, and working them into missions. And they've got like pretty much anybody who's not a named character is available as a commander at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, because basically, let's see. Uh, Space Marines. Now, Space Marines only get Primaris, strangely enough. <laughs> Hmm. Which is weird. Interesting. But it's like it kind of makes sense since Primaris have that extra wound and in Kill Team that's a big deal. That's, yeah, it is. You, yeah, but and and then there's nobody with Terminator armor. No, no. There's a Primaris captain, Primaris lieutenant, and it's the captain not in Gravis armor. It's just the standard captain. Yeah. So captain, lieutenant, chaplain, librarian. Uh, Death Watch can take the captain, chaplain, or librarian, or they can take a Watchmaster. Uh, Grey Knights can take a Brotherhood champ because I'll admit a Grandmaster would be a little high level to be in a uh, yeah. in, in a kill team. Um, also, the the Terminator armor. Yeah, uh, Guard have Commissars, Lord Commissars, Platoon Platoon Commanders, Company Commanders, and Tempester Primes. Mechanicus has Tech Priest, Engine Seers, and Dominuses. Heretic Astartes get Exalted Champions and Sorcerers. Death Guard get the Foul Blight Spawn, the Tally Man, the Biologist Putrefier, and the Plague Surgeon. Thousand Sons get an Exalted Sorcerer or a Zangor Shaman. Eldar get, I should, Craft World Eldar get uh, Autarchs, Warlocks, and Farseers. That's cool. And they do get Runes of Battle and Runes of Dis- Runes of Fate. Based on which one you are. Right. Yeah. Although it's a smaller list. It's only oh, three yeah. spells each. Totally makes sense. There's three uh, spells in the index. Right. Drukhari get the Archon, Succubus, and Homunculus. Harlequins get a troop master, shadow seer, or death jester. No, no solitaire. Well, the, the solitaire, solitaire is works a kill. alone. The solitaire is a kill team. Yeah, and then he <laughs> died. Overwatch. Yes. Uh, Necrons get overlords and cryptex. Orcs get war bosses, big mechs, pain boys. Tau get uh, fireblades and ethereals. 
Nids get Tyranid Primes and Broodlords. Interesting. No, no Anthrope. And then uh, cult, Gene Stealer Cults get the Magus, Primus, Patriarch, and Icon Ward. And then that's pretty much it. And then they've got uh, you know new missions, both open play and narrative and matched. And I should say both. There's all three of those. Um, they've got new skill trees because you choose what kind of specialist your leader is. So they all have their own own tactics that they can use. And then I guess there's eight commander model boxes out right, there for right. eight of the factions. Right. So, and I think it's specifically for all the factions that have been released so far. That totally makes sense. I'm right. Like, so, like orcs have the have their war boss, Wor- World Killer. Which is the old war boss with the squig and everything. That used to be a named guy in uh, Stormclaw, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's Guard have a, a Scion commander. Or no, they have a Lord Commissar. Uh, Guard have Lord Commissar. Uh, Space Marines get a Space Wolf Librarian. Uh, Necrons get an Overlord. Tau get a... Uh, Fireblade Twin Flame. Yeah, they get a Fireblade. Um, Drukari get a Succubus. Which makes sense because their box was a Witch Box. Yes. Let's see. Nids get a Broodlord, I think? I, I didn't. Nids aren't on here. Oh, Nids actually. Okay, so that's a faction that was released and didn't get something. Interesting. Oh, were Nids released? Yeah, uh, okay. because they got a Gene Stealer box that was for Nids, not cultists. Gene Stealer cults were in the core box. Uh, there is a Tech Priest Dominus. Yeah. So there's been ten released then. So let's see. We've so we got Death Watch, Orcs, um, Mechanicus, Necron, Astra Militarum, Tau. Orcs okay. and Drukari. Okay. Or, no, or, hey, that's Orc. That's Space Wolves and Drukari. Yeah. I said Orc because his name a is Death Orc Watch has. There's a Death Watch commander. Yep. So those eight, and then I guess there's the Gene Stealers and Tyranids are the ones that don't have commanders. I guess, yeah, they don't. Okay, so there's eight of them. Okay, that makes sense. So, yeah, those yeah. are the two. But everybody, every other army that has been released for Kill Team has a character. Okay, now I'm excited to see what, what Eldar and Harlequins have. Eldar will probably get a plastic... I'm going to guess Farseer. Because they have a stand... Do they have a standing Farseer in play? Yeah, they do. Yeah. yeah. Oh, they've got standard for all of them. Right. Well, maybe Archon. They... No, or there's Autark. a... There's a... Uh, yeah, Autarchs. I don't... They, if there's yeah, a... Yeah, there's not really a good one. So you'll get... You'll probably get a Farseer or a Warlock, and then Harlequins will get... Any any of them will be available, because they're... They've I could all see done it plastic. being a Death Jester, and I would hope it's not... I, no, wait. Harlequins are probably a Troop Master. Yeah. Because that's yeah. their theme. Well, but it, but Troopmaster's just made out of the troop box. It would be a standalone that's character. True. So it would probably be a Shadow Seer. Yeah, I would rather it be a Shadow Seer. Yeah, so my guess is it would be a Shadow Seer. Uh, Chaos Space Marines would probably get the, uh, what's it, the, the Aspiring Champion model that they've had yeah. for a while. Um, mm-hmm. Death Guard, they just pick one of the new plastic kits and put it in green plastic. Right. Um, and same thing with uh, Thousand Suns. Since those are all, those all got redone as well, put it in green plastic as well. No, no, no. It would not be in green plastic. It would be in like light blue plastic. But otherwise, yeah. I mean, so yeah. Basically, as new armies get rolled out, I imagine the pattern now will be to have a commander that comes out as a separate purchase. That makes sense. And they are doing. I do like the fact that commander is a considered an expansion. It is not. It does not supersede the existing rules of yep. Kill Team and render your Kill Team book obsolete. And it even specifically says you can only use commanders in missions that say you can use commanders. Both players have to agree that commanders can be used. So mm-hmm. 
you can play Kill Team without having to feel the need to buy this. But it, if you want to do it, it gives you an opportunity to expand. Strangely enough, it's more expensive than the core rule book by 20 bucks, but you also get all the cards that you need. Right. And it, and it also makes the, what's her name from the rogue trader box who at level four costs a hundred points makes that makes more sense now, now that commander kill teams are 200 yeah points. right right and then they had that a bit in like rogue trader i think the kill teams went up to 150, 150. okay so yeah they, they actually had the rules for that but yeah 200 points because some of the commanders like the the level one premier's captains like 76 right so even 150 point list you'd be at a little bit of a disadvantage and as we're learning in the kill team campaign where points playing, add up fast yeah right. and once you start leveling people up you can't include everyone anymore right right yeah and the like my uh like I have a fire team of stealth suits and they've actually all leveled up a level another 21 points a piece instead of 20. And now my math doesn't work and I have to retool re my list and, <laughs> and bring in newbies from like other things. Good, because, because stealth suits are evil. Stealth suits are awesome. In yeah, Kill Team, they and, are and fantastic. I, and I actually finally looked at the rules for lictors and they are nowhere near as cool. Oh, what, as stealth suits? Yeah. Well, yeah, they, don't, as cool as they don't fly and they don't shoot, so... Well, yeah, but even <laughs> even their stealth is not. It's as just cool. improved cover. Like if you're it, obscured, you're more obscured. Yep. Yeah, mine is just That's I'm all, mine is I'm always obscured except it's it's just a flat minus one, so it stacks with everything. So right, yeah. So which is super dumb. Good. <laughs> it is. It is. This is why I don't like stealth suits unless I'm playing them as them. I mean, <laughs> and if you could put them in your Harlequin army, you would. Yeah, I just. Harlequins are good unless you roll bad, and I tend to always roll bad. <laughs> you you roll high when you need low, and low when you need high in that exactly. game. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We played a game uh, last week, and it wasn't pretty. Uh, it wasn't a slaughter. I mean, we no, all, it wasn't a slaughter. No, but not like when I played Necrons. That yeah. was a slaughter. <laughs> well, that I mean that's a classic rivalry there, so that makes sense. No, it shouldn't be that one sided. Yes. In the Necrons' favor. <laughs> But anyway, I think that Commanders, I think it's going to be a, a fun add-on. Yeah, to, I, I do want to try them. that out now that we've actually gotten a bunch of Kill Team games under our belts. Commanders, see how that how adds that, some, yeah, how, how it plays differently or what it adds. Because you've got a character now who has like five or six wounds, because they actually give you wound counters that go up to like six. Wow. Nice. So, because they're yeah. like, these characters you know, are not going to be taken out by one wound. So And technically, Lictors do have a shooting attack. Oh, the Flesh Hooks? Yeah. You got to get it's, real close it's, and friendly. It, it's real close. Okay, here's a silly question. Do you think in the Slime Marble re-release that he'll have like kill team rules added? You know, I don't think they mentioned that, but that would actually be really awesome. Let's see if they say cuz he could be a decent commander the or so-called one man army. Yeah, yeah the so-called one man army is an ideal idea addition to any Katachin collection and comes packaged with his data sheet, which he did in the past. But yeah, having a kill team data sheet for him where he counts as like a hundred point. Like, or, or maybe uh, like the, the army of one expansion where you have like him in the solitaire and any other thing that's just like an army by itself. That would actually be, that could be really fun. You know, then, that would be even fun to just kind of like kit bash. Yeah. And, and then have them go up against a kill team that's trying to take them out. That would, that could be a fun game. That could be fun. It would that be would be pretty cool. Really yeah. rough on the the solo player unless they really are an army of one. Well, I mean, Sly Marbo's rules and kill team should be that would hopefully be that good. All right, so let's uh, so that's new releases. So let's cut over to the news and let's talk big FAQ two. 
Um, there were a number of things that, uh, obviously we've had a lot, a lot, a lot of listener conversations, uh, regarding what kind of things were, uh, likely to come in, uh, big FAQ2. How, how would things be changed for, especially command point farming? Um, and like, how were, was the reserves rule going to be finalized? Things like that. So. Let's just take it from the top. Uh, they, you know, fortunately, just like last, just like in April, uh, Games Workshop put out a document for the big FAQ 2 2018, which lists what rules are finalized and, and which ones are going to continue or what are the new beta rules and revisions. So what is, and again, most of these, uh, other than errata in the individual FAQs, for the most part, these are matched play only. So again, if you are a narrative player, or just do open games, these will not really affect you for the most part. So, Battle Brothers. The Battle Brothers rule is now finalized. That They have decided that is a thing they want that is going to be implied to all match play. So, the final rule is all the units in each detachment in your Battleforged army must have at least one faction keyword in common. In addition, the keyword cannot be Chaos, Imperium, Eldari, Inari, or Tyranids unless the detachment question is a fortification network. This has no effect on your army faction. So... That is unchanged, which also means the errata that they added for, like, if this rule is in play, uh, like, these factions can be taken without an HQ, it, but you get zero command points for it. I imagine that is all still in play. Psychic focus is still locked in. That hasn't changed. Neither is the, the targeting characters. Rules. So pretty much those are working as intended. We're not going to see any changes to that. And I believe these are also going to be reprinted in chapter approved 2018. So uh, just so that everyone has a print copy that says these rules are in play for all matched play games. Now we get into the beta rules. So tactical reserves. This was the one that said if it was turn one and you had something in reserve, it could only land in your deployment zone. It couldn't land outside of that. Uh, This did not affect things that started on the board and got teleported across or... Uh, something that came in after the game has started, but before the first player turn. It, so they, they we've played with that for about six months now, now closer to five. And uh, basically, based on feedback, they're going to be changing how that's going to work. So uh, the original. Uh, so here's here's what they say. Following feedback, we are changing the Tactical Reserves beta matched ru- play rule proposed in the Spring 2018 update, which was in itself to. Ex- an update to an existing match play rule in the rulebook. The original wording in the rulebook restricted the number of units that could arrive during a game to half your army, but the intent was half of your army's strength. The first beta version of this rule clarified this to be half the power level of your army, but as match play games typically use points values instead of power ratings, we have clarified that this should be instead half the points value of your army. Which changes things up a little bit, uh, but mm-hmm. in for the most part, it's not going to make a huge difference. Now, they said, even when limited to half your army, the ability to arrive on the battlefield mid-game remains very powerful, enabling units that can do so to arrive where they will be most effective while granting them immunity from attacks until they're on the battlefield. Armies that use a heavy proportion of reinforcement units continue to dominate on many gaming tables, which is why we felt it necessary to rein in the power of these abilities in spring 2018. However, our original beta rule, which limited the units that arrived on re- as reinforcements during the first battle round to be set up within their own deployment zone, received a lot of mixed feedback. Whilst it did help to rein in the power of some armies that used a heavy proportion of reinforcement units, it also raised a lot of questions from players regarding which units, abilities, powers, and so on were affected. Some players felt it was unfair that all their units were restricted 
While all of their opponents' units were exempt, perhaps the biggest criticism we received, though, was that the rule seemed to break many players' suspension of disbelief as they could not understand the background reasons behind it. What was the rule representing on the battlefield? Which, okay, so first of all, I find that interesting that they're really giving, this is the feedback we received, mm-hmm. and and not just saying, people told us they didn't like it, so we're changing it. They're actually saying, like, this doesn't make sense. Why can I only drop in on my own battle, you know, my own half of the field? Okay, that's, you know, uh, and also, like, why is this army affected, but this army not affected? As a result, while we are proposing a new version of this beta rule to, that is designed to rein in the power of reinforcement heavy armies, while also maintaining a more narrative theme, which I think is kind of weird because we're talking match play and not narrative play. They tend to kind of blur the line. Yeah. Because they still yeah. want narrative match play to have a narrative feel yes. to it. Uh, and the players want, you know, narrative when it benefits them. Yeah. I, <laughs> you're not play. wrong. You're not you're not wrong. Yeah. You, 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 I, I took my Slanesh Demons and Scray Knights. That was very narrative and I, I well, got slaughtered. It, it turned out very narratively. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mission <laughs> mission successful. <laughs> to that end, units that arrive as reinforcements must now wait until the second battle round to do so. They are reserves that arrive to reinforce your army mid battle, not reinforce it before your opponent has had a chance to move any of their models. Fair statement. Fair. Yeah, fair statement. We also felt because it was so different that we should release this as a new beta match play rule rather than enshrine it in the rules before the wider community has had a chance to provide adequate feedback. We've also removed the exception that Gene Stealer Colts had in the previous beta version of the rule. Rest assured that this has been taken into account for Codex Gene Stealer Colts, which is currently in development. Which also tells me Gene Stealer Colts not coming out in the next month or so. Right. Right. So here's the, the finalized rule. Instead of being set up on the battlefield during deployment, many units have the ability to be set up in teleportariums, in high orbit, in ambush, etc., in order to arrive on the battlefield mid-game as reinforcements. When setting up your army during deployment as for a match play game, at least half the total number of units in your army must be set up on the battlefield, and the combined points value of all the units you set up on the battlefield during deployment, including those that are embarked within transports that are set up on the battlefield, must be at least half your army's total points value, even if every unit in your army has an ability that would allow them to be set up elsewhere. Furthermore, in it, match play games, units that are not placed on the battlefield during deployment in order to arrive on the battle middle game as reinforcements cannot arrive on the battlefield during the first battle round. Finally, any unit that has not arrived on the battlefield by the end of the third battle round in a match play game counts as having been destroyed. Now, before we talk about any of the other errata they have had to apply as ripple effects of this, it's kind of, in some ways, it's interesting because it just takes us back to 7th edition. Where mm-hmm. it's like reserve, yeah, and it totally makes sense. Reserve should be something that comes in later in the game, not something that you just surprise deploy a first turn on in your opponent's face. But at the same time, because now you cannot deploy first turn, you have a two turn window to deploy your reinforcements, and then you're and then they're destroyed. Which, I, like, if you're going to make it not turn one, I would almost say expand it to a four, like, to turn four. Yeah. Although with yeah. as many games not getting to a turn four. That, that's what I was about to say. With, with If it game ended, like, five, six, or seven, yeah, definitely expand it because sh- you're shifting the window. But we see a lot of games only getting to, like, four, maybe five. But also, if you're putting enough stuff in reserve that... You'll probably get to the later turns. You'll faster. probably get to later turns. So, and if you yeah. get, and if your game only goes to turn three and that stuff isn't deployed, it's tabled, and that's the, how Destroyed it's always anyway, and yeah. that's how it's always been. So yeah, and you're not beholden on a die roll anymore, right? So you, it's like oh, it's turn just, three, we're yeah. running low on time. I better just drop everything down, right? 
Yeah. So so you know when the stuff's going to come in. So I would mm-hmm. I would expand that window. Otherwise, I don't really have a problem with this. Although, again, it, there are some unintended side effects that they apply as errata, but I know there's a lot of people that are unhappy because, like, my army doesn't work unless I can drop on my opponent's face first turn. Um, I don't think that was ever really, from the sound of it, that's never what Games Workshop intended, and so now they are kind of applying that that rule mm-hmm. to say, this is really what we had in mind, you're not playing that way, so we're going to change the rules so that it is clear what we want. So now the related errata is kind of interesting. Raven Guard no longer get to deploy. Raven Guard, Alpha Legion, Rangers, Illic Knight Spear, um, they no longer deploy after the first turn, but before, or after the first battle round is started, but before the first player's turn, they now basically deep strike like everybody else, which means they also can't come in until turn two if you decide to put them in hidden. This also applies to. Uh, Stygius 8 Mechanicus. Also, the Incarn can be set up in waiting rather than on the battlefield. Well, he used to always do that because he comes in not through like deep strike rules, but when something dies. And so this is basically saying that you could start with him on the battlefield now? Well, you could always start with him on the battlefield, but most people waited until something died, then dropped him down on turn one in the opponent's So now you can't do that. Right. So I'm, I'm incorrect in saying that they all deep strike now. Rangers deep strike. Rangers and Illing Nightspear Deep Strike. Stygius 8, Alpha Legion, and Raven Guard, now instead of doing that pre-first turn deployment, they get a free scout move. Mm-hmm. They can move up to 9 inches. They can't end the model within 9 inches of any, any enemy models. Um, so basically, the I'm going to deploy Alpha Legion Berserkers in your, in your face, that's gone. That is no longer a thing. Yeah, that's um, disappointing. <laughs> I mean, it, on the one hand, it's like that was kind of Alpha Legion's thing. So, mm-hmm. uh, and of course, Alpha Legion and Raven Guard play pretty much identically as far as their like stratagems and ta- chapter tactics work. So, I mean, I understand why they're both affected. I understand why they made that change. But so it's basically all these, bef- you know, setting up before the first turn, that's all gone. All, all those abilities are, are pretty much gone. Um, I'm, I'm kind of sad to see them go because I thought it was very fluffy for those armies, but it's one of those fair is fair. If nobody else can, can deep strike that, you know, first turn, they shouldn't be able to either. Right. No, I agree with that. Yeah. It, it definitely takes some of the utility out of Rangers because that was one, you know, having played three Eldar players at, uh, at iron halo. Yeah. Every single one of them had multiple Ranger units and every single one of them was, I had to make sure that I didn't deploy anywhere where, first turn they could just you know i had to make sure there were no bubbles for them to come in and that's still something you've got to watch but they don't get a first turn just pop up and and sniper shoot you a lot so well and i think that's i think you just kind of hit on part of the reason why they make that change too because as you mentioned like every eldar list had three units of rangers as troops now hopefully people will vary it up a little bit and you'll see more guardians as you know or other troops units as well, and not just three units of the popping on the table turn one. Yeah. And yeah, so obviously the, the, this is part of a larger set of, you know, to rebalance the game and make, make things appear more the way that they intended. So we'll see, mm-hmm. we'll see how this, how this affects people. I, again, a lot of armies that had been built to um, exploit the ability to deep strike, very close to an opponent and get that first turn assault with like a smash captain or something. 
I know Blood Angel. I've seen a number of Blood Angels players saying, my army is now ruined. I can't play it anymore. It's like, if that was the one thing that your army did, maybe you should have stopped looking at Smash Captains as the end-all be-all of your army. Yeah. But I also understand that, like, you know, in match play, if if a unit has power, everyone's going to try to use it as much as they can. So, I I, I mean, hell, Nathan, who was on our, our Dark Angels episode, uh, was running Smash Captains with his Dark Angels. Just you know, at, just because, but they're Smash Captains. They're good. Why wouldn't you? So, mm-hmm. and then we've got some new match, new match play rule, rules that are in beta. So we are now also introducing the following two new beta match play rules: prepared positions and tactical restraint. As with our previous beta match play rules, do let us know what you think. Prepared positions is a stratagem that is available to the player who has the second turn in the game. Often taking the first turn gives a player a distinct advantage, enabling them to target and shoot their opponent's units before they can react. This stratagem gives the player who has the second turn a chance to better weather that storm. Tactical Restraint is a new rule that limits the rate at which command points can be regenerated throughout the battle via warlord traits, relics, etc. With the increase to the total number of command points available to all armies that were introduced in the spring update, we, which increased the number of command points the battalions and brigades gave a player, these types of rules were made commensurably better. This match play rule attempts to correct this, ensuring your pool of command points remains a precious resource. So prepared positions is a new universal stratagem, which is actually kind of cool to see. Yay! We've been wanting to see that kind of thing. Uh, so for two command points, you play this at the start of the first battle round before the first turn begins. You can only play it if you are the second player. Um, until the end of the first turn, all units in your army that are wholly within your deployment zone other than Titanic units receive a benefit, the benefit of cover, even while they are not entirely on or in a terrain feature a unit that is already receiving the benefit of cover games, no additional benefit from the stratagem. So everybody gets an extra one to their saves, unless they're Titanic. I like that. I do. I think like, it's an interesting way to. I think it's an interesting way to balance the first turn issue. I don't think it completely solves it, but it's an interesting start. Yeah, I don't know if it's going to be enough, honestly, but we'll see. I, I, I'll. I, I'm going to withhold judgment until I see if this has mm-hmm. enough of effect. I think armies that are getting shot off the board are still probably going to get shot off the board. Yeah, uh, especially if. If AP, you know, if any of these weapons they're being shot up with have an AP penalty, plus mm-hmm. one of your saves may not make a, a, an appreciable difference. But we'll yeah. see. But at the same time, I can imagine they didn't want to hand out a minus one to hit because those are problematic as well. So yeah. And then tactical restraint, we've been we've had like I said many arguments about how to fix the command point battery, or the you know and, and the regenerating command point issue, and we're like maybe we don't do it, maybe we only spend command points on our own, and, you know like only on the the faction of the person who's generate or like only mm-hmm. you know they can only be spent within faction detachments. This is a strangely enough a, just a much more elegant fix. Uh, th- so they tactical restraint. There are several warlord traits, relics, and abilities that give you a chance to gain or refund command points when you or your opponent either use a stratagem or spend command points to use a stratagem. In match play games, each player can only gain or have refunded a total of one command point per battle round as the result of each such rules, regardless of the source. This does not apply to the moment shackle or the sevenfold chant abilities or to the player of the twilight warlord trait. In these cases, the ability or warlord trait can refund or gain the player more than one command point if the stratagem used costs two or more command points to use, but once any command points have been gained as a result of the rule, neither it nor any similar rule can be used to gain any more command points until the next battle round. Also note that this does not apply to command points that are gained or refunded as specifically instructed on stratagems, e.g. 
feeder tendrils, agents of Vect, etc. So, like, agents of Vect, which says, uh, on a two through five, the, the stratagem doesn't go off, but you get the points refunded. That would, you would not, like, that would not stop you from them being able to gain one more on your turn. But, but you could still only then gain, but like your Kurov's Aquila or Grand Strategist is still only going to get you one per turn. And mm-hmm. I think that will actually tone down command. I mean, you can still theoretically regen six points a game, which can still be good, but you're not going to see people like, well, like we talked in our Iron Halo coverage of somebody like starting the round at eight and then ending up at like 14 at the end of a, mm-hmm. uh, at the end of a battle round. I mean, that, that's ridiculous. So being down to one. And that's battle round. So even if like you, if you regen on one on your turn, you can't regen one on your opponent's turn. So, so uh, there's an interesting conversation that I've seen online regarding some of the wording on this. It says that you can do it once per battle round. So obviously, like turn one, turn two, turn three, turn four, etc. Yeah. How does that play with pregame stratagems? Because I have seen it argued both ways that people say that you can use the tactical restraint to regain command points unlimited before the game starts or that you can't use it at all. I- I've seen it argued both ways. I think I would personally lean towards you can't use it at all. Cause it's not battle round, but I've seen other people say, Oh, well the limits only per battle round. So I could use Kirov's Aquila to spend a whole bunch of points, deep striking on relics and things like that, and then regain all of them back or get a chance to regain all of them back. Yeah. That, and I've seen that argument as well. Like, especially like, well, the character in question has to be deployed on the board before you can use that ability. And I don't know if they have... I don't think they've clarified it. Um, I know that... So in the conversation that I had on the ITC tournament organizers board, I put out the argument that I don't think you'd be able to because it's not on the board and it's not during a battle turn. Reese responded later in the thread and basically said that for ITC purposes, they're treating it as you can regen as many as you want since it's not limited by the battle round. But it's just an interesting, I kind of wanted to get other people's opinions on it and see, see what everyone thought. Cause I personally think you wouldn't be able to do it, but other people seem to have. Okay. So here, here's the, okay. So for example, that Kurov's Aquila and grand strategist were eroded in the previous round of FAQ. So not in this one, they were eroded to specify while the bearers on the battlefield. So they have okay. to be on the battlefield to use it. So if you deploy that character first, I mean, it depends on when the stratagem is used. If I use the stratagems before you put the person on the field, they wouldn't Mm. be able to... So, like, before the battle begins, like, so for example, I got my Death Guard Codex here, and the, like, the Relic stratagem Mm -hmm. says, use the stratagem before the battle. Your opponent could not use that because that that is already being used before anything has been deployed it's basically used during list creation for effectively so yeah. you you couldn't get that one back but if i deploy my let's say let's say i'm playing guard and you're playing eldari mm-hmm. and i play my company commander who has grand strategist or it's grand strategist that lets you get your opponents back sure yeah um since we are not in a battle round and we it's already been ruled that you can use a stratagem multiple times 
Because normally you'd be limited to once per phase on like a webway stratagem or something like that or a teleportarium. We've mm-hmm. determined that we already know that those aren't limited because it's outside of the battle round. So because we aren't in a battle round, I can actually see the argument that as long as you put the character on the board, you can use that to try to get back points if you're, you know, when your opponent is spending stratagems to play because you place spend the stratagem when you would place the person on the mm-hmm. board. So, right. so those I would allow, but like relic stratagems, I would not because those happen before anything. Okay. So that, yeah, w- that would be my feeling on that. Yeah. I just think it's interesting because I think that is going to be the main question that comes up with that is people trying to game. Since you can't game the system during the game, I think people are going to try to get as many command points back during deployment and pregame as possible to, to start the game with as many as possible. I don't have as big a problem with that because most of the armies that are going to depend on a CP farm to be on the table, that CP, you know, they're not going to be placing mm-hmm. as many things into into Deep Strike themselves. They're not going to be spending that many pregame stratagems anyway. So True. And that also brings a bit of, of strategy into it. If I know my opponent's going to be playing a CP regen character, which will be less common now mm-hmm. because it's not as powerful... Then maybe I don't, maybe I try to deploy more things on the board and only put a minimum th- number of things that I have to have in reserve into reserve to deny them the opportunity to, to regen those points. And that's kind of where I would, I would land on that. It makes this a much more strategic question, but I, I would, I, I could actually see allowing it as long because it does specify the character has to be on the board. So you can't sit there and regen points before the game, like before the character is deployed. Okay. So. So I and you know, again, it you know, Reese is saying this is for ITC purposes. So, you know, your match play events may vary, but I, I think it's just consistently ruling that, and I and I can actually see the argument for make you know for for that being the case. Okay, all right. So I just wanted to get other people's opinions on it because I'd seen it argued both ways, and I wasn't sure how to you know how what the what the logic would be on it. So yeah, I think that that is the logic that as long as the character's there. But it would, again, anything that would be spent before that character is on the board. So, like, for example, again, the Eldari versus Guard thing, if the Eldari places something in the webway first, you know, like, my first deployment is, I'm going to place this, like, the squad of rangers in the webway. Well, that's Mm -hmm. a bad example. There's no uh, stratagem there. But I'm like, okay, I'm going to deep, I'm going to put this uh, unit of dire Avengers in, in the webway. Then my opponent doesn't have the character on the board yet. They couldn't regen it. Okay. And speaking of stratagems, uh, there's also a list of stratagems that were rebalanced based on changing up their point costs, because they or and one of them actually got a rule a small rules change. Uh, Warp surge no longer allows you to improve uh, a demon's unit or a demon unit's uh, invulnerable save more than a four up, because it was allowing people to get to a two up. Yeah. So they're like, that's no good. We're we're limiting that to four. And then a number of stratagems got got recosted. Blood Angels upon Wings of Fire is now two command points instead of one. O- Oathbreaker Guidance System, uh, Order of Companions, and their Our Darkest Hour, all from uh, Imperial Knights, went up. All went up to three command points each. So like Oathbreaker is the one that lets you target a Shieldbreaker missile at a character, even though they're not the closest, which will pretty much kill most characters if you roll well enough on the damage roll. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Order of Companions, uh, which I want to say is the House Raven. One of them is the House Raven stratagem that, or it might be our Darkest Hours, the House Raven one, which allows you to uh, 
basically um, fire, I think, charge and uh, advance and fire. Okay, Oathbreaker Guidance System is the one that allows you to target a character. Right, we knew that. Order of Companions is the House Raven Stratagem. Use the stratagem at the start of your shooting phase. Pick a House Raven model. Until the end of the phase, re-roll all hits of one for the model, including hits, wounds, damage, and rolls made to determine the number of shots fired for weapons that make random attacks. Okay, that's and that's good. Yeah, that's really good. And then our darkest hour is House Tyrannus. Okay. Uses stratagem when the House Tyrannus model from your army is reduced to zero wounds but did not explode. On a D on a, roll a D six on a four up, you, uh, set the model up again at the end of the phase as close as possible to the previous position. More than one one inch away from enemies with D three wounds remaining. So that's the ah, I'm not dead yet. Yeah, that one needs that one. Ne- yeah, probably need to be recosted. So, so all three of those are super powerful, and yeah, probably needed to, needed the recosting. <laughs> right, and then we have Agents of Vect, everyone's favorite, least favorite stratagem, mm. is now four command points. Still too cheap. <laughs> uh, okay, no, that four, four command four command points, <laughs> and you can only regen one a battle round. Guarantees yeah, no, that that's, that's you're a lot better. you're either using this once per game, or you're using it more, but you're gonna burn through your command points super fast. Yeah. Well, it, it makes it what it should be, which is it's the clutch. I need something here, so I'm going to use it. Right. And that's that's a lot better. That's a lot closer to what it should be. Right. And then at the same time, we also have a change to it that specifies the stratagem cannot be used if there are no cabal of the Blackheart units from your army on the battlefield. So I to, love that. So to clarify <laughs> that not only is it a cabal of the dark or cabal of the Blackheart stratagem, you you need to have a cabal of the Blackheart army. <laughs> Or at least detachment. Yep. And then, yep. and it cannot be used to affect stratagems used before the battle or during deployment. So, again, this, this really narrows down the scope of what, it, of how this is meant to be used. And I think it's fine now. Yeah. I think, I think having this army that has a spoiler stratagem like this is good. I think it's honestly good for the game to have that. And that, but the army has to be built properly to use it. And, now will not be able to generate a ridiculous number of uh, command points and just keep doing it. And th- so right. I'm very happy with that. I'm hoping that some of the changes for this will cause other warlord traits to be used too. So we can stop doing codex reviews where we say, yeah, there's like six warlord traits, but only one of them is worth a damn because it lets you regen warlord <laughs> regen <laughs> command points. Yes. I, I'm, I'm, I want the, I want to see more options. I want to see more. There's plenty of options. I want to see more of them used. And this also does help even the playing field a little bit between those factions that have very limited ways or no ways to regen command points versus armies that had all the tools to make all the command points forever. And I know there are guard players who have written to us in the past and said, but regenerating command points should be kind of our thing because it's what we're, you know, it kind of gives us something to be good at that specifies it. My answer is you're also the army that can make one of the cheapest brigades, which should give you more than enough command points to play with. And you still have some of the easiest access to abilities to generate more. You just won't necessarily, you'll, you won't, for one thing, you won't see somebody take grand stat, grand strategist and Kurov's Aquila because there's no point. Yeah. So it, that's already going to enforce some diversity by just saying, well, it won't enforce diversity, but it'll, it'll encourage diversity by making those options, not good together. Whereas, before they were stupid good together and why would you not take both of them all the time yeah absolutely i don't think command point batteries are going to go away 
I think people will still take the lucky 32 to have command points to get that, that five command points and have a way to regenerate one a turn, no matter what they're playing. Oh, but you might also see more diversity in what batteries people use because it doesn't have to be the guard version. Yes. So, but yeah, the, the idea of the cheap battalion, it's something we were talking about before the show started. And we kind of meant, I think we mentioned this possibly in our iron halo coverage is that the, I, or I think we talked about it beforehand was that, Pure armies, pure monofaction armies, with few exceptions, are the exception now. They are the exception, not the rule. Mm -hmm. And so you should really just get used to the idea that there are going to be command point batteries, but I think you're going to see more variety in them. You're going to see, you're, you're going to, the guard is still a very attractive option because it is still super cheap, but it won't necessarily be the only option that you see. Well, like now, like if you're playing Imperial Knights, instead of using Guard, you might actually be using Mechanicum, you right? Bring Skatari, yeah. And and that's that's much more fluffy for what you're doing. So I think that's I think this is all all leading towards a better better army builds and more diversity on the tabletop, which is what we want. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you know, looking at some of the other armies, uh, there's one other change in the core rulebook that I think needs to be discussed because it also has wider mm -hmm. ramifications and that is the change to fly and all related abilities as harlequin players yeah dennis just rolled his eyes at that one yeah <laughs> so uh the errata it's it seems like a relatively minor minor touch but uh page 177 moving change the second paragraph to read if the data sheet four model says it can fly then during the movement phase it can move across models and terrain as if they were not there which the big change there is it gets rid of the two inch vertical charge. Yes. It also, um, it also hurts a lot of like jetpack armies that were charging over people and making screening units irrelevant unless they were hugging whatever they were screening. So I will probably see a return to cheap screen units, which again, I don't necessarily have a problem with. But again, yeah. it's, it's one of those things like Smash Cap. People who are focusing on Smash Captains are now, again, doubly disappointed because Upon Wings of Fire is more expensive. They can't deep strike them first turn, and they can't jump over screens and assault things. Yeah, but I don't. I think those are all okay. <laughs> yeah, and Smash Captains are still good. It's just they're they're good now in the context of you need to build an army around them to support them, which is really how it should have been built the whole way agreed also they did clarify you can perform heroic interventions in your opponent's charge phase even if they did not declare any charges that is a definite yes there which basically means yes your opponent has declared zero charges their charge phase is now complete you may heroically intervene right well and they also did specifically specify specifically. as opposed to generically I know, I, you know yes, specify I know. they did specify in the faq as well related to that that no phases are skipped that all phases occur every every battle round. Right. So if you have so for example, you said if you know, and this ties into the heroic intervention, if I don't charge, you can still heroically intervene because the end of the charge phase still happens. Even if I'm playing Tau and I don't have psychers, the psychic phase still happens. So if you have abilities or stratagems that trigger in the psychic phase, you can still use them. So I I, I think that is a good clarification just to make let everyone know that no, all of these phases still occur, 
So you still have opportunities to do things, even if your opponent doesn't doesn't have the ability to do things or chooses not to do things. Right. Um, they also do specify at the very end of the core rulebook FAQ on uh, under organized events. Demon prints data sheets from different codexes do count as different data sheets. So I'm a little I I'm, I like that because it's helpful, but I think that's kind of dumb. <laughs> Just like they say, the demon prints data sheet from Codex Codex Chaos Space Marines, the demon prints of Nurgle data sheet from Codex Death Guard, and the demon prints of Zinch data sheet from Codex Thousand Sons all cons- are, are all considered different data sheets for the purposes of the organized play or organized events guidelines. Uh, same thing with like tactical well tactical drones that you take as war gear don't count as units of tactical mm-hmm. drones. So you could still have three units of shield drones and then all the other add-on drones you want. Mm-hmm. Units that are up to three per data sheet, but then they split off to become their own units like Lehman Russes or Carnifexes still only count as one data sheet at a time. So you can have up to three like Carnifex broods. Right. Which makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so- they, they added in the caveat on uh, when you shoot with a unit that uh, a unit attacks with all ranged weapons it is armed with, but if a model has a, a any weapon that can only be used once per battle, you can choose whether or not the model will fire that weapon. Yeah, so no more like, I, I have this yeah. missile that can be fired once. I don't have to fire it. Right. Yeah, because that, that one was a little bit of a point of contention for some people. They've also very much, very clearly specified... You pick all your targets for shooting before you fire a single weapon, including yeah. deciding how you're splitting up shots. Yes. So yes. Uh, so you don't get to fire a weapon and say, ooh, they're dead. Now I move on to the next target. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. You pick what you're going to fire and with the knowledge that you may waste shots by by performing overkill. And that's pretty much for, for the core FAQ. Um, like Harlequins got uh, their FAQ, basically updated them to work the same way the fly rule does there. They can only flip belt over things in the movement phase. Uh, Tau got updated to specify that only attacks that involve a weapon skill or ballistic skill to hit roll can be stopped by shield drones, so they will not protect you against mortal wounds other than being a closer unit than the, you know, to the Psyker. Right. So, like, or, but yep. if like, are there any abilities that just cause mortal wounds to a unit, shield drones will not save you unless that involved hitting them with like like a railgun shot something like that where it does mortal wounds in right. addition you know who didn't get updated gray knights gray yeah. knights did not get narada they are as good as they're gonna get they killed my slanesh team yeah dennis everything killed your slanesh team <laughs> i don't know if we were clear on that part of this of the going oh and five because i know there weren't five gray knights players that you played that would have <laughs> sucked <laughs> oh. Oh. like after like turn four or like round four comes up come on so, 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 hey, Grey Knights players, you need to start showing up in force. There you go. <laughs> That's what I plan on playing. You're a braver man than I am, Gunga Dan. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like most of the, like, a lot of the, the armies got got smaller. Uh, wraiths got updated. During the movement phase, they can phase across things. So they can't charge through terrain or through yeah. units. They can go around it, so they can still charge something they can't see, but they actually have to physically go around it rather than just through it. So, yeah, again, anything that could skip terrain outside the movement phase can't do that anymore. Oh, one, one, one thing, other FAQ faction, one that I thought was interesting, uh, in the Imperial Armor uh, FAQs, which the Imperial Armor books got FAQs, which is nice, um, even though Grey Knights didn't, they specified that for uh, Space Marines... 
Wolfen can embark in any transport that Terminators can embark in. Oh, that's nice. Which is really awesome, and I really wish your rule day would apply to GW Prime stuff. Yeah. <laughs> because, like, it would be super awesome to be able to, like, put Wolfen or Primaris Marines in other vehicles. I just, such a dumb rule. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, so, so, with Imperial Armor stuff, you can put Wolfen in, in whatever you want. <laughs> but only if you buy the Forge World. That's how they make the big mu- the big bucks. <laughs> Let's see. Um, oh, space, they, they space. Did, oh, sorry. Go mm-hmm. ahead. Oh, they did specify the uh, uh, Yanari warlord trait debate, uh, which we had mentioned before. That uh, like Yanari can be your war. Uh, Yanari character can be your warlord, but they can only choose from the core rulebook warlord traits, which is I think how we how we had talked about it talked it through. But it's nice to get official like clarification confirmation that that's how that works. Right. Um, and then they also mentioned that they don't get like the free relics because they're not part of their, they're not part of like the, if you take a Yanari character in a Harlequin detachment, you can't give them Harlequin relics because they're not Harlequins. Um, you can then spend <laughs> extra stuff to get them. But Right. But it, well, what they're saying is if yeah. let's say you have another character in there, but they're, so it's like, if Rain is my warlord and is part of a Harlequin's attachment, does she count as a Harlequin's unit for the purposes of giving one Harlequin's character in my army an enigma of the Black Library? No, you can, however, if your army includes the appropriate detachments, use the prizes from the Dark City, treasures of the craft world, or enigmas from the Black Library stratagem to give relics to your characters. So yeah. you you would still, ha- which also clarifies the, you can spend points to get relics, you can spend command points to get relics outside of a detachment yeah like you know outside of the main detachment so you know it in they kind of answer both of those issues but they also add that if i include evrain the vizark or the incarn in a craft world's drukari or harlequin's attachment do i still have access to all the stratagems in that detachment's codex yes provided it is not an auxiliary support detachment which it couldn't be because it would just be an anari detachment of one without any other any right. other keyword, which you then couldn't incru- include in an army because it would only have the Inari, <laughs> the Inari and Eldari keywords. So, really, I'd say if there's if there's one if, you know if there's one army that really loses out of all of these, it's Gene Stealer cults because they now officially have to wait until their codex comes out to be right. really viable. Mm-hmm. Because their army does not have the staying power to survive a first turn necessarily until all their really good assault stuff comes in, unless they can stay hidden. Yeah. Which would also fit fluff-wise, but I think you're going to see more Nids and Gene Stealer Cult to let the Nids kind of be the heavy hitters up front and then have all the Gene Stealer Cult come in. But we'll see what happens when their codex comes out, if they're going to have stratagems or rules that will allow them to get around this somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like I said, there's more there, but there's like 16 documents here to try to go over. So try. Yeah, to, I think we fit like the big ones. Yeah. I think, you know, the, the fly change and the, uh, yeah, the change to fly, the changes to, and the beta rules. Those are definitely the big changes. So, and that actually transitions us nicely over to listener mail because we have several letters about, you know, questions about the big FAQ. So, as always, these letters are written by you, the listeners, and if you have a letter you would like us to read or a list you would like us to review, which we got like six Space Wolves lists in like the last <laughs> week or so, so we may have to do an all Space Wolf list review 
episode at this point because uh which i will spoilers we're not reviewing a space wolf list today because i wanted i'm actually trying to get through these in chronological order more or less so so first off we've got a a follow-up letter from daniel hawthorne uh now daniel wrote to us a couple of episodes ago about um changing up how morale works in the assault phase and he actually had a twitter question which was um, if you said uh, it's changing the rules about wounds other than mortal wounds not spilling over to, say, in the shooting phase. So uh, basically, assault wounds would spill over from model to model in the assault phase. And mm-hmm. one of my one of the things I brought up about that was it reminded me of the rule that said casualties in the assault phase counting as like double for morale, which I said, felt, you know, it's it's one of those things that it seems like more to track. It's a little bit more bookkeeping. Uh, Daniel uh, responds, Hi, Rob. Based on your response to the assault adjustment I suggested via Twitter, I'm not sure why my question was... I'm not sure my question was clear. I'll give you an example of what I meant. Shooting phase. A weapon causes D6 damage and a roll of six causes six wounds and kills one model at maximum as it currently is. Every other phase, a weapon causes D6 damage and a roll of six causes six wounds and kills six if they each have one wound. Models add maximum. This is how it works in Age of Sigmar. You mentioned bookkeeping for the morale phase and changes to morale as part of my suggestion for some reason, and I'm not certain why. And the reason was, again, it was it was related to other other ideas to make mm-hmm. uh, assault more functional with morale and such. Um, so they were kind of only tangentially related. As far as I can tell, the morale phase would be unaffected as some as with units adding the number of models lost over the course of a turn to a D6 and subtracting their leadership and removing the difference. There's literally no additional bookkeeping from how the game currently works, uh, which it changing how wound allocation flows is going to change things up a little bit. It's not a major bookkeeping change. No additional tests. The only change is that units that can cause multiple damage and assault can potentially kill more enemy models, making hard-hitting assault units tougher to tarp it. Considering how powerful weight of dice is in the current version of the game, this helps curb the impact of mass cheap infantry being mathematically superior against assault heavy hitters. Hope that clears it up. Sorry for any confusion. Regards, Daniel. Um, there's some cases where I don't think that's necessarily the case. For example, um, it does weird things to like Imperial Knights where Imperial Knight or, or any unit like uh, Mortarian has the same kind of thing where you choose I'm doing either single like fewer hits, but they do mat- multiple damage or a lot of hits that do less damage uh, for clearing out. Like, am I going after a big single target or a lot of infantry? And I, that kind of that, that strategic choice goes away. If you do that, if, if all mm-hmm. wounds are just wounds, like why wouldn't I use my Reaper chain sword all the time? Because it's got a better AP, a better strength um, and we'll probably kill just as many models. Right. Because right. like at six flat damage a swing, I'll, the math is actually better because, let's see, uh, Titanic feet, uh, the average knight unit has four attacks. So, uh, so that's going to be 12 swings, hitting on threes, wounding on twos, assuming the knight is at full health and you're against a marine equivalent or less. Uh, the Marines are going to save on fives because it's AP minus two and take D3 damage each. So it'll probably kill them. You know, each each one that gets through will kill a Marine. But on average, I'm going to hit with not I'm going to hit with uh, nine of those 
I'm going to wound with, let's say, seven of those, and the Marine's going to save like five or save like two of those. I'm going to kill five Marines. Right. On, on average. Reaper Chainsword, I'm going to hit with, I've got four attacks. I'm going to hit with three of those. I'm going to effectively wound with three of those because I'm wounding on twos. Yeah. Most likely I'm going to wound with three of those. That's 18 damage at like an AP minus four. Right. Those no, Marine, no. that entire squad is dead. <laughs> and it doesn't matter. Like they're, Primar- they're Primaris. They're still dead. I'll still, still kill like 12 of them. You know, so, or, you know, I'll, I'll kill like, if I, I get three through 18, I'll kill, ni- I'll kill nine of them. I mean, it makes those, yes, it does make those heavy hitters good, but then it, it gets rid of the whole purpose of having attacks that are made to kill scores of infantry because I can just razor blade through everything. It's definitely one way to do it, but it's, it's just shifting where the damage is. And honestly, if I have five heavy hitters, Let's say I've got five guys with thunder hammers, and they get mobbed by a by thirty orcs. They should die. The math they is not should. in the the math is not in their favor. I don't care how. I mean, no matter how many people they kill, there's going to be just so much more, you know, more bodies than they can chew through. So mm-hmm. it, it's also the difference. It, it also it feels weird having it like the whole point of like a heavy bolter versus a las cannon is they're good at different things. This should work the same way in assault. If I if I want to go after big things that I can take down with fewer hits, that's what I send. Thun- that's what you send thunder hammers and power fists after. If I want to kill a lot of guys, that's why I use bolt pistol chain sword. I, I I think you know if if you do that, it's like you shift the me- the meta to everyone wanting to take the weapon that's going to do the most damage because those are also usually the weapons that have the best AP anyway. Yeah. So they'll just kill more things anyway. So I I think there's – it's one way to do it, but I think there would be a lot of unintended side effects that would yeah. just – it would just shift the meta and not necessarily help in a good way. Because it's kind of the issue that we had in uh, – like we talked about in 7th edition, the thing that kills a Marine kills everything else just as well. And yep. the thing that kills a tank kills a Marine just as well. The only thing that balances that out is the number of shots. But if your wounds carry over, number of shots is no longer an issue. So that that completely changes the balance of the game. All right, next up is from Stuart Worthington. Stuart writes, Hello again, Preferred Enemies. Thanks for reading out my last email on the air. I enjoyed your take on the topic, and it's great to listen to a podcast that engages its community. Well, thank you, Stuart. We enjoy doing it. Another hot topic that has been back going back and forth on the podcast have been CP and stratagem abuse. I have some thoughts about this, but it didn't seem worth raising them so close to the FAQ, which might have been made them all invalid. The FAQ is out now, so we can all feel licensed to howl into the wind to our heart's content. I'm really <laughs> pleased with the change to CP farming. Amen. Uh, this has been an annoying imbalance between the factions which can and can't do this for a while, and it meant it was always automatically the best relic or warlord trait when you had access to it, so the choice was boring. However, they don't seem to they don't seem to have done much to stop people using the cheap suit battalion to get huge amounts of CP to start the game with. I've heard a few suggestions, but the one I like most that was originally mentioned on Tabletop Tactics is the Warlord-based system. In this system, the faction you pick your Warlord from becomes your main faction, and any other detachments become allies. Then you you then work in some drawbacks for taking allied detachments, such as no relics from allies ever. Some of the relic abuse could be fixed or reduced by the other changes below, so maybe this one isn't necessary. 
Less or zero CP from allied detachments. This is the most important one for me. Bringing that guard battalion may still be a nice choice for getting me some cheap bodies, but it's not going to get me any CP that I'll be more inclined to fill up on troop slots from my main... But if it's not going to... Bringing that guard battalion may still be a nice choice for getting me some cheap bodies, but if it's not going to get me any CP, then I'll be much more inclined to fill up on troop slots from my main faction. My preference is that allies bring no CP at all. If this sounds too harsh, then changing it to half CP, half CP may be enough, especially if it's rounded down. Or less or zero stratagems for allies. I've heard some call for no allied stratagems at all. I don't like that my idea myself. What I'd rather see is a higher CP cost for using stratagems outside your main faction. To represent the fact that your warlord needs to expend more effort to get their allies to do their thing. Either a flat plus one CP per stratagem cost, or my preferred method, double the cost. Which, for most stratagems, would be about the same, but for some of the bigger ones, it would make a huge difference. I do have some faith that this kind of thing might be being worked worked on for Chapter Approved 2019, as this does seem to be the intended vehicle for radical changes to how armies are constructed. I think he probably meant 2018. 2019 seems a bit far out. (laughs) <laughs> uh, someone on the podcast mentioned balancing the cost of stratagems. In my mind, elite armies like custodes and knights should have super powerful stratagems for pretty cheap because these armies should have very few CP. Armies like guard should either have weak stratagems or they should have high costs as they can easily get 18 more, 18 or more CP. Unfortunately, this doesn't work while well. you can easily mix them together and use guard CP to fuel elite stratagems. I really feel for my friend who wants to play pure blood angels because his smash cap, because smash captains are so good, he keeps getting nerfs that make it less and less viable to play his army pure instead of attacking the problem at its root, which is the efficiency of using them as allies. Thank you again for your time, Stuart from the UK. Which again, I think gets us to what we said earlier is that the, the monofaction army, with few exceptions, primarily Xenos armies, because, and primarily Necrons town orcs, because they're the, really the only ones that can't do it at all. Pure armies are are few and far between these days. And even yep. those armies tend to be built in such a way as you have multiple battalions to try to get as many CP as possible. But I think uh, I think Games Workshop is really not looking to see... Uh, they're, they're not really pushing mono army or mono faction armies anymore. I really don't think they are. No, it doesn't seem like it. I like some of the ideas he mentions of like reducing the CP you get from allies or increasing the cost on stratagems for allies. My only problem with that is if you do both, then you really skew things. Right. So you, I think it's really, I think it's really more of like, ah, you pick one or the other. Uh, but I think they're good ideas. Yeah. But I also, you know, the, I, I do like the idea of your warlord's detachment being more important. Mm-hmm. And it would encourage people to put their warlord in the larger detachment. Yeah, I don't think we'd see that in chapter approved 2018. I think that would have been something they would have put into a big FAQ as a beta rule. I, yeah, I would agree. With I that. think so. So something, something like that would have popped up right here. Yeah, I think what you're what you're going to see is they're going to let the current rules as they are ride. I, I think they've looked at the situation. Either they're they're wanting to make incremental changes and not not tip the boat too much, which is why they're still tinkering with the uh, the beta rules for tactical reserves, or you're going to like they're going to see how so it, I should say so they're going to see how this change to like limiting the CP regeneration how does this play out and if it does what they want it to then they'll um, go ahead and keep it as is if they're still seeing people using command point batteries the way they don't want them to 
then we'll, then you might see a change like this where your warlord change, like your warlord determines your army faction and that determines what stratagems. But that would be a massive change because every single codex would have to be updated, like the text that says mm-hmm. what unlocks the stratagems. Cause it just says you have to have a blank detachment that's not an auxiliary detachment. Yeah. Reducing command points from allied detachments. You know, I look at it, it's like that's kind of, I think allied detachments are really what like patrols and spearhead vanguard uh, outrider detachments were kind of meant to be. I yes. don't, yeah, so I don't know if Games Workshop intended people to take multiple battalions from multiple armies, but short of putting in a, I think an easier way to put that restriction is to say you can have one battalion or brigade. I mean, that, because that would effectively get you the same thing without yeah. having to throw in a lot of rules. Basically, say for an organized event, you can have up to three detachments. Only one of them can be a battalion, brigade, or supreme command. And that would effectively get you the same kind of limitation on command points without having to do this weird, well, this one is your primary and everybody else's allies, and mm-hmm. it gets weird from there. Um, and then you don't have to have restriction of, like, I can have my warlord in the supreme command detachment or in an, or in an outrider, but I'm still limited to one battalion. But, like... Even if you did that, like then you'd also have to put restrictions on night lances because that because that's an army that can like a super heavy detachment. I guess would also have to have a similar restriction because it's more than one command point. So, like my my army that I took to Iron Halo was a, a super heavy detachment and a battalion, uh, a battalion of sisters and a super heavy detachment of knights, and it was a night lance. So I got six command points from it because I had three Titanics. So I was rocking fourteen command points. That's something that would put knight armies in a situation where you'd pretty much have to play full knights because there would be very little incentive to play anything else. Yeah. Um, which then is going to make knight army. <laughs> it's weird. It's like that would make, could potentially make knight armies kind of boring. So again, it's these are, you've got to watch the unintended side effects of changes and then see. You know, kind of see where where does GW really intend the game to be, and I think they're getting closer and closer to getting it there, but it's not there yet, obviously. Uh, next letter is from Sigmarius. Sigmarius writes, "Hi, P frenemies. I've heard a lot of people griping about command points in the Imperial Guard. They can pry that term from my cold dead hands. Command point battery, and a bunch of comments about how running an Imperial Guard detachment with Marines or Custodes or Knights is fluffy, and it is sort of." The issue is that the fluffy part is backwards. You almost never see a small group of IG with a much larger group of Astartes. You see a squad or company or part of a chapter on a battlefield with millions of IG troopers. Stories about uh, stories abound of IG armies being locked down in a war zone and requesting assistance only to be given a combat squad of Astartes who proceed to break the back of the enemy command structure and then the IG win the war. The modern context is Army Special Forces. For every Green Beret A-team of trigger pullers, we have dozens or hundreds of regular troops acting as support, cleanup, intelligence, and so on. So if folks want to keep the fluffy part of the CP battery, make it to where there has to be a patrol detachment of Astartes or Custodes and at least a brigade of IG. In my opinion, that's a lot more fluffy. I'm not saying this is a balanced option or any less clunky or anything like that. I'm only looking at it through the lens of what's fluffy. Thank you for all the content you put out, the fact that it's free, and it being good quality. Well, thank you. He's not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> He's absolutely not wrong. I mean, uh, it just kind of echoes what we've been saying for a while. I think. Yeah. The only time it gets fluffy is when you have like, when the numbers are like, 
you have a battalion, you know, you're the lucky 32 battalion of guard and three shield, like a starty or three uh, custode shield captains because they pretty much cost a tactical squad each. And throw on slime marble for fun. <laughs> yeah. You know, that you have to play, play really, really expensive stuff to, to make it make sense. But no, he, he's not wrong on it being fluffy. But again, there is also the side of it. At least there, a, a, an attempt was made at being. And making a fluffy army. So, and I think the Battle Brothers rule does help that quite a bit. But, uh, yeah, it, it, the, the rules really should be kind of reversed on, on what is and isn't, f- like, w- what combination is and isn't fluffy. So, <laughs> all right. Next up is from Peter Lathrop. Peter writes, hi, preferred enemies. You are all doing great work, and I can't wait to hear your next podcast. Well, guess what, Peter? You get to be you. You are part of it. Uh, you have been doing a good job with the podcast in the year, or so I've been listening. It helps me pass the time at work and keeps me thinking about new ways to play along with new ideas for games. Nathan Damf was amazing to listen to. He has a very beautiful voice that was just meant for people to listen to. I'm sure he's going to hear this and blush wonderfully. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed hearing the perspective of someone who has played the Dark Angels as one of their main armies and what they thought was powerful and what they enjoyed about the army and to hear knowledgeable lore. I think it would be great to incorporate a guest who exclusively plays the Codex army that is being reviewed. This is generally something we like to do, which is why we don't ha- like getting us to talk about guard is not impossible. It's like it, it's there's enough moving parts that like some armies we can kind of look at and like, OK, I see where this is going. And especially when an army comes out or a new codex comes out, we you know, there's that impulse. You want to be with everybody else and kind of take it apart as quickly as you can. I'm glad on some of these codexes we, we did wait because you do get I and I think with having an actual player uh, talk about it, we do get a much more knowledgeable feel, which also you'll notice we haven't talked Necrons yet. So. We'll we'll probably bring in. We've got a, a guest Necron player or two we could bring in. Guard. We have a number of people who have offered their services. So we'll. Th- this is something we will try to do more. And I think I'm going to continue with his letter. Uh, I also enjoyed hearing a review of an army that has been out for a while, though hyping up a codex that is about to be released. Like I just said, uh, some good <laughs> gives you some good insight. You have not gone back after the FAQ for the codex was released to go over the FAQ. I personally prefer what you are doing now, going over codexes after a few months of them being out and the dust is mostly settled to see what is good, what is subpar, and what can be a hidden gem. Now. For a question, what are your all thoughts on Patreon affecting the Warhammer community? What do you think of content creators who start off as offering free stuff, but then go go to the bare minimum free and the rest of the rest of what they create is behind a paywall? One of the reasons I still listen to your podcast is that you call Patreon a tip jar and that you will not hide content behind a paywall. Though I do not have the funds to help, help support the sh- podcast, I hope to support it in other ways as possible. Keep slaying enemies, blood for the blood god. Um, <laughs> on the last point there... Uh, I think it really depends on what is your purpose for doing what you're doing with Patreon. Um, mm-hmm. If somebody is looking at this as supplemental income, like this, like they are taking, they're basically treating this as a second job. And they are, especially if they're doing like video and stuff, video is even more time and time intensive than what I, what I do editing the podcast. Uh, I edit the pot. Like if I, put together the time I spent editing the podcast. It would be like one extra day a week if I did it all in one go. And I have done that before, but that's, I, I don't consider that enough to uh, try to support, you know, try to make a living out of it. Um, but, it, but if somebody is trying to treat this as a, a form of supplemental income, 
I'm not going to begrudge them the the chance to do that by wanting to do some like putting out enough free stuff to get some you know to get people's attention and to keep putting stuff out there because you do have to keep putting stuff out there even if you put most of it behind a paywall because if nobody knows about what you're doing nobody's going to come and try to cross your paywall but if they're doing video you know they've got to pay let's say they don't have a home studio you know they've got to pay you know and depending on how many people are involved in the production of what they're doing um you know they may, they may be looking at it as a, or as a way to support their hobby like you know this mm-hmm. is how the, you know it's like we're putting out content out there so that we can afford to do more stuff that's you know that's their choice i'm not going to begrudge them their business model i'll occasionally tease people about it like it's like somebody who like the flying monkeys for example like we had this conversation on on our last shows like they put their older episodes like once once you get like so many episodes back they go off of the free feed and they become like archival and you have to be a patreon supporter to get it that's fine that's their choice they're still putting out free content regularly it's just going back to the archives cost that's their decision they've they've chose that's how they've chosen to do that to help fund what they do because they are spending their time doing as as somebody who has done the purchasing on equipment has done the editing <laughs> they are you know this stuff costs time money going to different events and covering them costs time and money uh we're basically using the the patreon we've used it to buy equipment for doing better recording on site recording and to also help cover the costs of going to more and more events because this is not cheap to do and because when you have two three four people traveling to an event and you've got hotel space to to consider and uh, you know just other travel costs and making sure that you've got a portable setup that will make it through you know it's easy to port around and you know the, it it takes you know it takes resources so having the, <laughs> having the patreon to help defray the cost of that really does help us out and it helps us continue to be able to do the show but everybody's patreon is different i'm not going to begrudge somebody for having a, di- a different business model especially because we don't consider this a business this is a thing that we're doing and just people asked us in the past hey can i s- is there a way for me to send you a few bucks because I appreciate what you're doing? Mm-hmm. And so we finally got a Patreon set up. It's not a huge Patreon, but it helps cover, it covers our hosting costs, it's helped us buy equipment, and it's helped cover some of our travel costs. That's exactly what it's there for. And that's, that's what we're using it for. If somebody else is using their yeah. Patreon differently, that's their choice. And you as a listener and a potential patron, you have your choice. I mean, it's kind of a free market thing. You have the choice to get, you know, go where you want to put your money. If you like a product, if you like what somebody's putting out and you want more of it, support them. I mean, I'm not going to tell anybody to not support somebody because they charge money for their stuff and we don't. Yeah, it kind of goes back to last year at LVO when we were at the uh, that media panel. They were at one point somebody asked uh, the media panel, like, you know, would you consider doing this as a full time job? And there was a variety of responses. A lot of some people were like, yeah, this is my full time job. This is how I support myself. This is how I pay the rent. There were other people that are like, no, this is a hobby. I don't want to do it as a job. Mm -hmm. So I don't begrudge anybody who takes either model. If someone is putting out high quality enough content that people are willing to pay for it, that is awesome. And that's good for them. Uh, you know, we're none of us are in a position where this is our our job. This is our main thing. So it doesn't to me, it doesn't feel right for us to to charge like it is our full time job. If something were to change and all of a sudden we all won the lottery and we could afford to do this full time, maybe that changes. But 
Oh yeah, if I if I win that one point <laughs> six billion dollar Mega Millions drawing on Tuesday, I'm quitting yeah. my job and doing like forty k in podcasting full time. I mean, I was, I've exactly. already decided that. Oh, I've got a ton of options for other podcasts. I've got a <laughs> lot of ideas. <laughs> but yeah, it's like I would, you know, if if funding was not an issue, yeah. I would totally do this full time. But I can't. And the amount of patrons and the amount of content we would have to that's where it really gets tricky is the the level of content you would have to put out and the number of patrons you would have to have to make this a self-funding enterprise where we where all four of us could quit our jobs and do it full time <laughs> there there's no way i mean sure yeah. there there's there's very few patron there are, there are some people on patreon that have managed to put that can get that kind of money but they you you look at what they're doing and they're doing like a lot of them are doing video and podcasts and they're doing like four or five videos a week mm-hmm. and they have they have to pay somebody who d- helps them do video editing they have to have studio space it's like all of that stuff is not cheap and to get the kinds of numbers they have to constantly engage with the community it would become a full-time job if you had if you had to to actually make money from the public doing it yeah you'd be a full-time job this is not a full-time job for us for other people it may very well be and again i'm not going to begrudge them on on how they choose to do it Next up is from Charlie Baxter. Charlie writes, Hello from England. Big fan of the show, which always keeps me entertained on my long drives. Although math hammering a list while navigating the UK's roundabouts is sometimes less than ideal. Yeah, d- put down the list and drive. Just be safe. <laughs> I enjoyed your long-awaited coverage of Codex Dark Angels, but I have to put you straight on the Lion and Wolf stratagem, which he's absolutely right on this. This is an error on our part. Which unfortunately only works on infantry models. Therefore, no super buffing Sammy or Thunderwolves. I found this detail out while attending a doubles event, playing my Ravenwing again alongside a friend's Space Wolves. We are hoping to pop that very tactic, but we're thwarted, thwarted by the wording. I can, however, suggest a worthy target of the strat would be on Azrael and Arjak Rockfist, buffing them both up to superhero level. Keep up the great work. All the best, Charlie. Yeah, he's, he's absolutely right. So no Thunderwolf, Cav, and Samael buffing each other up. It is limited to infantry models, but there's still plenty of decent infantry models that you can choose from in both factions so uh, it, it's still a good tactic to try it just won't work on those particular models that we specified so that's on us and we even read the text of the stratagem out and then completely <laughs> infantry pff, what's that i don't know so uh and it, anyway we we screw up sometimes this is also why we don't do this for a living because we screw right. up sometimes <laughs> All right, next is from Oliver Kite. Oliver writes, Hi, guys. Firstly, thanks for putting out the best 40K podcast out there. I didn't realize we were on the independent characters. (laughs) Boy, (laughs) Carl's going to be so surprised. I work from home and also travel a lot, and so consequently, I devour a lot of audio content. So hopefully, I speak from experience of a lot of podcasts. On to my proposition or thought experiment in the post-40K FAQ2 world. It's a little nebulous as an idea, but what's to stop GW from creating a section of subsection of rules in beta and in an adopted download format that will apply specifically to competitive match play only? I know GW likes to think that match play is for more competition-type games, and if you're not doing that, then opener narrative is for you. But in reality, match play applies to far more games outside of the tournament scene than in. For example, when playing with mates... We use a 2K matched game from the rulebook of ch- or chapter approved because it's the most commonly used format and is enjoyable in either Eternal or Maelstrom. 
My reason for thinking this subset of updates to the game is valid is because the FAQ is affecting the normal match play negatively, in my opinion. As a mono Blood Angels player post FAQ 2, I now find it harder to imagine using them much in order for me to have fun. As Lawrence from Table Talk Tactics says, playing certain mono armies is hard enough at the moment without the extra nerfs. However, if they'd have applied the fly in movement phase only change, for example, only to competitive match play, I'd still have half a chance in a normal matched game. The same could go for CP farming, which when not exploited in tournament suplice is pretty cool and adds flavor to many games, but in competition is clearly a bit broken for juicing up your castle with a freshly squeezed guard battalion. Just a thought, but one which might be useful for discussion. Keep up the good work, Ollie in the UK. So this was kind of interesting because this gets also into the like the idea of friendly formats versus competitive formats, which we've talked about mm-hmm. in the past. And like I understand the the idea of like this rule or that rule should be match play only. Like the and most of the rules they've been putting in for match play only are specifically there to balance the competitive scene so that you have two armies on more or less an even field, which is is not, you know, universal, but you know, going at it with basically the same footing and trying to eliminate any loopholes while still having some of those abilities available for narrative play and open play. And Oliver, you you do bring up a good point that a lot of match play does exist outside of tournaments, but I would my argument would be to not think of those of those games necessarily under match play rules. Although some of the changes, like the fly rule, the fact that that is that is not merely a match play rule, that is an errata rule that affects multiple factions. And in fact, some factions that don't use the fly rule are even further eroded to make them function mm-hmm. in the same way. Tells me that that is not so much a match play change as a this is how we intended this rule to play all the time and we were we didn't realize how unclear we were about it until just now. I don't think that's necessarily a match play balance rule. It's also dangerous to say we only want these rules for match play or we only want these rules in a super matched play subsection for competitive match play because they hurt my army. That is that's dangerous territory to get into. Because there's a difference between this is not balanced for matched play because, you know, it, the idea of match play is two players who may not know each other, whether it's a tournament or at a local store. The idea of match play is we, we both built our armies with points. We both are playing by this very clear codified set of rules to be as balanced as possible. And now we'll play. Um, most of the most of the matched play only rules are to do things that even out power curves so that one army doesn't dominate purely by its army structure. But I I don't know if I would necessarily want to, it's like, what would you put into a competitive match play only? Like, like how, how fine, how finely granular, granular do you want to get that? Well, so I, I don't want to dismiss the idea out of hand. I do think you're right. It creates some odd, interactions and different things like that but if you created a tournament competitive format you could put things like here are your chess clock rules here are uh specific deployment rules uh here are specific missions even that can that are only used for these and they're designed to be as balanced as possible um you could put in things like here's an extra stratagem for 
uh, that's only available in like the super competitive one that like maybe the, uh, the one that's, you know, that adds, uh, adds one to the cover save or to your armor save if you don't go first. You could put more things like that in a competitive format with the explicit purpose of we are just trying to make the most balanced game as possible. We are not worried about as worried about fluff. We're not as worried about streamlining or consistency with rules. We are just trying to make this as com- you know, as competitive as possible and as balanced as possible. I think that's I think that could be done. I just don't think that the GW has much interest in that because mm-hmm. I don't think they care about monitoring the tournament scene beyond, as you mentioned, this is clearly broken and this army is so much better. It doesn't work the way we want it to work. I don't think GW has at this point has any interest in being in the tournament scene in that regard. Um, maybe that changes in the future, but I don't I don't think they're interested in it. I think that's what's preventing them from doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, they've, I mean, they've kind of, you know, they've kind of edged their way into it by like doing like the Throne of Skulls at Warhammer World and Mm -hmm. soon to be at the Warhammer Citadel as well. Uh, But uh, yeah, I don't, I think with supporting match play to the extent that they have, and obviously they're watching the large tournaments, they're watching the top level players and seeing how things are actually shaking out in the field. It's like, let's let this. And again, they're taking kind of a methodical step to it, although how methodical it is when you push off your FAQ because holy crap, somebody just broke the game nine different ways yeah. at one event <laughs> and we need to we need to nip this in the bud right now, which is why we got, you know, big FAQ one pushed back. Um, you know, it's they're obviously paying attention and looking for the biggest rules abuses, but yeah, some of the stuff I think, like again, like the fly rule that Oliver brings up, the fact that that was an errata tells me that 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 was not just a balance issue. That was a we worded this badly, and we didn't realize how badly how how unclear it was until just now. Which yeah. seems weird that we're like a year, you know, a year and a quarter into the history of the game, they just now fixed it. But you know, maybe they wanted, maybe it took them a while to figure out like this is the way, like what's the best way we can word this to, and and what all does it affect? Right. So, I I think that uh, maybe what you want to do is actually just play open, but use points. Yeah. Like I I don't think that there's necessarily any reason why you can't just say we're playing open play, so we're not using really any of the matched play rules except for the specific these specific army construction rules. right yeah i mean that's that's the thing about this is like you know if you're playing with your friends you can house rule anything you want you can basically say yeah we're gonna play we're gonna use match play rules except for we're not gonna use the tactical restraint rule because neither of none of us are really exploiting that but we'd like to have it available and we're gonna use power level instead of points because we like that better yeah, you're allowed to do that. <laughs> you know, it's it's when you get into a neutral environment where you have to have a rule set set for everybody. And then you get if you don't have if you have like here here's the other thing I and I think I've brought this up on the show before. Whatever the tournament setting, whatever the competitive environment does ripples out and will will cover more general play. Right. Because if I'm going to play a game because I'm practicing for a tournament, I'm going to want to play using the competitive rules. 
which means mm-hmm. I'm going to use the mat. I'm going to like in this case, I'm going to use the match play rules. If you come up with a subset as the competitive match play rules, I'm going to use those. Now I'm I'm talking a more generic me, not specifically me. I'll play whatever. But let's say you know you you are practicing for a tournament. Why would I not play the same rules that I'm going to be using at the tournament? And then the games that the people that want to get in games with me are going to have to play by those same rules. Right. They're going to get used to playing yep. by those rules. Eventually, whatever the competitive environment does just percolates throughout the the rest of the environment. You see it in card games. You see it in tabletop wargaming. It does. You know, it's the same thing. You have to specifically set aside spaces like narrative play, where you, which is what GW has done. Says in narrative play, none of that stuff matters. You, I mean, other than core rule errata, which in this case would like the fly rule. But like all all the stuff that we've said for organized events and match play and all that, that doesn't matter. You don't have to use those. And technically, the match play rules are all the. It's like in Pirates of the Caribbean. The book is more, you know, is more guidelines anyway. <laughs> so yeah, you, I mean, will GW further refine the uh, competitive uh, competitive rule set? No. If anybody does it, it'll be like the ITC because they're really fo- you know they have their own particular rulings on things that are even clear uncle- that are even unclear as far as the GW FAQ goes. And they yep. they have said for our events, these specific rules will be in effect. These rulings will be in effect. That's really, you know, it's going to be independent groups that do that rather than GW. I, yeah, I think I'm with you, Kevin. GW has shown, doesn't show any interest in taking it further than they already have. Yeah. And what they've already done is way beyond what they ever did in the past. So this, yeah, this is, this is still like for GW, they're doing kind of what he's suggesting. It's just, uh, you know, not to that, to the level. I understand for more casual play, you want to have, you may not want all these rules in effect, and the fun part is you don't have to have them in effect because it's casual play. You're getting to decide what you do and what you don't do. So, mm-hmm. All right, next up, Hiram Warby. Hiram writes, I'm sure your inbox is full of questions about the new FAQ. I have one as well. One of the questions in the new Space Wolf Codex FAQ is, question, if I replace a Wolfguard Terminator Stormbolter with a Cyclone Missile Launcher and Stormbolter from the Terminator Heavy Weapons list, as per the th- third bullet point, can I subsequently replace the new Stormbolter with an item from the Combi Weapons or Terminator Melee Weapons list as per the second bullet point? A, yes. However, in the Death Watch Codex FAQ, it says, question, can a Watch Captain replace his Chainsword and Mastercrafted Bolt Gun with a Stormbolter and another Chainsword and then replace his new Chainsword with a Relic Blade? Answer, no. Am I missing something or has GW contradicted themselves? If they haven't, how do I know if I can replace an item that it is itself a replacement? I don't know if it's relevant, but a watch captain can take a Stormbolter and Relic Blade if you use his options from the index as the designer's commentary allows. GW contradict themselves? Never. No. As in all the time. So, yes, uh, it's going to be based on specific codexes. Some codexes will allow you to do certain things. Some will not. Uh, there is there is no universal rule for replacing, especially in 8th edition, there's no universal rule for replacing war gear. If a unit says you can do it, you can do it. If a unit says you can't, you can't. If the FAQ clarifies that you can or can't, you can or can't, and it doesn't have to be consistent between books. Well, you know, this is, and this is how it's always been. Uh, right. Some armies let you do it, some armies don't. Uh, there is no consistency. Is it weird that one one ruling is is worded almost identically to the other, except the reversed answer? Yes, 
that's 40k for you. I wish I had more to say than that, but th- they've always yeah. had bits of weirdness like this. And again, it's based off of what options you're allowing. So, yeah, I mean, the default that we always go back to as well, if you're going to like an event and you're have a, you have a question about this, ask the TO, maybe the TO will allow you to like, maybe not specifically in the case of the watch captain, because it specifically says not in the FAQ, but Maybe the maybe the specific tournament event organizer will allow you to do something, uh, you know, or allow or not disallow something. So always check with the event that you're going to. Right, um, and you know most tournaments now are are especially larger events, smaller event, small local events, not so much. But that's when you ask a TO personally. But larger mm-hmm. events are all pretty much requiring list submission ahead of time. So if this is an issue that comes up, ask. Otherwise, you know, ask your you know ask your opponent how they how they would rule it, but. Yeah, for the most part, just, you know, go off the FAQ. And if the FAQ has two contradictory answers for two different factions, yeah, go with it. You know, go with with the FAQ. All right, next up is from Drew Davenport. Drew writes, Hi, preferred enemies. It's me again and my problem of building miniatures and never getting around to painting them. I have a list review for an Imperial Knights list I want to run, but I'll have to buy most of this list still. But I'm also hesitant because of the upcoming chapter approved changing the points and then this list wouldn't work. So my idea is to have a Knights in the style of my local NFL football team, the Kansas City Chiefs. I wanted to have a whole 11-man team, and the bulk of it all is Knight Gallant as my warlord with a plus-one attack trait and either the Helm of the Nameless Warrior or the Paragon Gauntlet Relic. Only having the Heavy Stubber on him, though. Nine Warglaive Armagers with Heavy Stubbers, and then rounding out the list is an Auxiliary Detachment for minus one command point for a wild murder fang to round out the 11th. (laughs) <laughs> this currently comes in at exactly 2000 exactly currently, but I'm torn between houses. I'm not sure whether to go house Griffin for the more attacks when I charge and heroic intervene or Hawk shroud to keep them all running at peak for much longer. I will hold off until chapter approved to see if any of these models change points to buy nine war glaives, but I'm interested in what you guys think. Here's the hoping drew. I think you should go house Marty and go smash mouth. Ha- did you say house <laughs> Martin house Marty? <laughs> um, you need it. To- you need to go with whatever house gives you all offense and no stinking defense. Uh, so the Hawk Shroud would be out. <laughs> <laughs> because if you're playing against the Chiefs, you cannot play defense. Unless it's the 90s. <laughs> so, yeah, I would in this one, I would probably go House Griffith then for the, for yeah. the all offense. Although, in that case, the Warlord should have more than a heavy stubber because Mahomes can throw. <laughs> Oh yeah. Although I guess that would fall under the uh, thunder, the thunder, thunder crash gauntlet. Yeah, yeah. The Paragon <laughs> gauntlet just grab people and throw them. Yep. He's also good at improvising. He is. Yeah. So uh, yeah, um, well, it sounds so, like a fun list idea. So the one thing I will say about it is, uh, points are always going to change. So like it's two thousand points now, but the core of that list probably won't change significantly. But you will have to. With something as big as knights, you're always going to see points adjustments. So magnetize as much as you can and just kind of roll with it. Yeah. And also, if you're using, if you're wanting to do it as like a chief's theme and paint them specifically to chief's colors, honestly, you can kind of use whatever house you want at that point. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could even then with, say Mechanicus know, house because they're all red. <laughs> yeah, because it's like at that point you're not using one of the standard how you know house colors. Experiment around, play with different ones, and see what you like. Yeah. So House Andy, go big red. <laughs> of course, if he was uh, if he was building a, if he was in Baltimore, he could build a House Raven team, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm sighing, but I approve that pun. <laughs> I figured you would. And I'm gonna take, I would, now I expect someone to send us pictures of a House Baltimore Ravens. Team. I want to see a House Baltimore Ravens team now. 
All right, and before we continue on to our next letter, which is actually our last, last, which is actually our last letter and our list review for the episode, I want to welcome our guest for part two, Alex Hunt, who has joined us on the show. How's it going, Alex? Oh, it's going pretty good over yourself. Uh, doing well, doing well. Uh, so uh, we have oh, this is going to be one of your favorites. It's a list review. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Nurgle list review, Alex. Oh, oh, great! That's fantastic. I love everything about this. Yeah, uh, before uh, it, a little bit ago, uh, off air, Alex was telling us about a, a game where he was—he finally got to use his gray knights against demons, and it ended up being Nurgle demons. And his improved smites did not at all. Oh yeah, improved, improved against the mortal wound generating. Oh hey, look, I've got an—I've got a uh, mortal wound save. I saved all of them. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, so so y- y- you'll be primed and ready for this one. Uh, so uh, this is from uh, Michael Champion, and Michael writes, Greetings, preferred enemies, the best 40K podcast for people who like to game with you being about the hobby more than about tournaments. Well, I think we strike a pretty good balance of being about yeah. all of it. Yeah, we try. So, uh, in fact, this whole up, this whole upcoming episode is the whole the rest of this episode is going to be about the hobby. But our last episode was all about playing in tournaments. So, we I think we strike a pretty good balance. Anyway, uh-huh. he he continues. I've been a war gamer for some time and normally play very fluffy lists. Now these I use the best rules for the army to make it as competitive as I can. But I still follow my own fluff. I've played pure night goblin armies, an all mounted orc army, pure skaven beast army, and in 40k when I play chaos, it is only ever Nurgle. Now when I play Nurgle, all my units are either 3, 7, 14, 21, or 28 strong. I've played with possessed in this edition along with warp talons. I don't, or didn't now, rules have changed, spam, mainly as I find that playing with what I have, making lists using my models is more fun than net listing. Amen, brother. Uh, now, my local gaming club is having a small, loose league, and I was paired with the only competitive player in our club, the only guy who goes to tournaments on a regular basis, so I thought, bugger the fluff, let's see if I can bring a, if I can build a list to beat him. I decided on the list below, would like your assessment of it before telling you how I did and how I played. Okay, so here's his list. It is His army is a super heavy auxiliary detachment, Death Guard, which is Mortarian. Right. And he took Miasma, Pestilence, Blades of Putrefaction, and Gift of Contagion for his psychic powers. He took a Demon Fortification Network to take a Feculent Neuromaw. He took a Battalion of Nurgle Demons, uh, which he had a Demon Prince with Axe and Wings and the Separating Plate Relic. And then Blades of Putrefaction for his psychic power. And that's his Warlord. And he took the re- Revoltingly Resilient Warlord trait. Uh, he has Epidemius. A Poxbringer with the Fleshy Abundance uh, Psychic Power. Three units of three Nurglings. A Chaos Decimator with a, a Decimator Siege Claw and a Soulburner Petard. Two Fetid Bloat Drones with Double Plague Spitters. One Fetid Bloat Drone with a Flesh Mower. And then two Plague Burst Crawlers with Dual Plague Spitters and the Rot Hail Volley Gun. So that is his list. So he wants our assessment of it before we continue on with the dis- the rest of the story. So um, first off, obviously, this is going to be playing off of stupid demon tricks. Mm-hmm. And you know, epidem- when I say stupid demon tricks, I basically mean Epidemius is going to be sit camping somewhere in a corner away from everything, and everything else in this list is a Nurgle demon and will kill things and make Epidemius better. Or make make Epidemius take the tally up, which makes everybody better. Yeah. Um, this is, I mean, I've played against uh, the the uh, 
worst version of this list I've played against, I want to say it was Joe Coolis at the, uh, it was either Joe Coolis or maybe it was, was it Joe Coolis or Jake Linfer's at Renegade Open last year? He had a list that was Epidemius and like three, three or four, uh, Plague Burst Crawlers and everything else was Bloat Drones. It's got to be Joe because because uh, Jacob doesn't okay, play so, okay. chaos. All right, it was Joe. Okay, it was Joe Coolis. So, uh, yeah, that list was nasty as hell. <laughs> and there, like, once it got going, there was nothing I could do about it. Absolutely nothing. So, um, no, this is this is very much in that same, you know, same regard. Uh, Mortarian hits like a truck, and di- you know, dishes out mortal wounds like nobody's business. Um, the troop, you know, the Nurgling troop choices are they're cheap, and they basically you put all your points into the into the plague burst crawlers and the bloat drones. Um, the soul burner petard is probably the be- one of the best weapons for the chaos decimator, so that one's a pretty obvious choice. I mean, I don't see anything about this. I mean, th- this list I imagine is working the way I would. Um, like I'm already picturing it where. Yeah, it helps with, uh, so the Naramaw helps with uh, cover, so you're putting your uh, Plague Burst Crawlers, like, next to it. Otherwise, you know, it's, it, you know, it's basically there for cover, causing mortal wounds if anybody gets gets close to you, and allowing you to shoot and charge. So basically, you, like, start all your, like, your bloat drones near it, put your Plague Burst Crawlers near it. And well, the Plague Burst Crawler is going to be hard to get into cover anyway. So, and then otherwise it helps with summoning, which I, he doesn't have. He, well, he does have points listed, so I'm trying to see if he. I don't know if he's going to have any points left for doing any summoning. Yeah, uh, I don't think so. I think it comes out pretty close to yeah to 2K. So to 2K. I mean, he can use it potentially as a way to like hold like hold the Nurglings and the uh, Poxbringer. Basically in reserve and then summon them in that way, but I don't well, well, summoning in this case, summoning is actually like generating units you don't have in your list. That kind yeah. of summoning, so which the neural maw helps with that, but it doesn't doesn't help you bring anything from reserves. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess he could just use he could use that to summon in the to you know those points that are allocated out to the nurglings and that and bring them in basically bring them in as yeah. Okay, no wait. But, All right, so. Uh, if you're within seven inches of the Neuroma, you count as having cover, and then you also get improved cover. It's two mm-hmm. instead of one. So yeah, you park the Plague Roast Crawlers next to that, and they're going to be nigh untouchable. Yeah. So that that's pretty much like he's setting up a little fortress near the uh, the Neuroma, and then the Demon Princes, the Demon Prince, and the Bloat Drones are going out and actually like getting work done, and everything they kill makes everybody better because of Epidemius. Uh, the Nurglings are there to pop onto objectives because they mm-hmm. they actually can infiltrate. You've got the the Bloat Drones, the Demon Prince with wings, and Mortarian are all going to be moving fast, and then everything else is just basically sitting still and bombarding you. So. Yeah, I mean, that's how I'm picturing this list playing. And then everything just plays off of the synergy. So let's see what he says. Michael continues. So I have now played this list twice. First time against the competitive player who brought knights with guard, CP farm, and assassins. Second game against a wraith-heavy Eldar list. Now, why did I take what I did and how did I use it? The Demon Prince with Axe is, as I like, the flat three damage. The volley guns, I like the increased strength. The decimator is, I don't like invulnerable saves, which I also have three smites to help with. 
My warlord was the demon prince and not Mortarian with his reroll all plague weapons, but with plus one on the disgustingly resilient roll. I find that with Morty around the tally and Poxbringer, a lot of the plague weapons wound on a two up anyway, so it was not needed. Absolutely true. That's mm-hmm. um so now how did I get on? Well, I won both games. The first in two turns, second in four. <laughs> So my plan was very simple. All out attack with as many first turn charges as I could get set up so that Morty, both crawlers, drone with flesh mower, DP and decimator engine were all able to advance and shoot and charge, and charge turn one because that's something else the Neuromal lets you do uh, with it, which is within range of the tree while keeping the Poxbringer close to them. Set the Nurglings up near objectives. The drones with spitters were needed and Epidemius somewhere safe. So turn one, everyone advances, then shoots, including the heavy weapons on the crawlers. I should get reroll ones on everything due to Morty and the Demon Prince. They may be plus one strength due to Proxbringer and maybe minus one toughness due to Mortarian. Then I charge. I want to take either take down large models or small units as I want my tally up ASAP. The reroll ones is is great. The plus one movement useful. The plus one strength amazing. The plus one toughness the best. Every unit in the army is a demon, so they all work towards the tally. I only needed three different stratagems. Veterans of the Long War, Reroll, and Counter First. Morty with Veterans and Blades can take down the biggest knight or a large unit of close combat Wraith Guard in a single turn with these. Yeah, you can use the stratagem yep. where the Death Guard infantry unit is selected to attack in a shooting or fight phase. You can add one to all wound rolls. Oh. Wow. <laughs> ah, especially cool. considering what, on wound rolls of seven, he does like more does mortal, mortal wounds. wounds. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh. So yeah, yeah, it is a big dispar- it was a big departure from my normal lists. I would play it again, but not in this mini league where for my next two games I think I'll go for a pure foot slogging Death Guard army. Thanks for the analysis, Michael. I don't really think there's much analysis we had to do other than Yeah, that list yep. that list looks like it's gonna be nasty. Let me see if this is exactly how I think it's gonna pl- play out. Yep. Well it's this is a good interesting example of how like, we talked about during the other questions, how like allies can be important and be useful and still be fluffy because I do think that the Nurgle demons and death guard work really well together. There's, there's a lot of synergy there with the Nurgle and demon keywords kind of all throughout both, both books. You can get a lot of really cool, really powerful combinations uh, out of that. And I think that's, I think that's good. I think it's good for the game. Yeah. And this is one of those things where, um, this still falls within the realm of the Battle Brothers rule because one thing we, a lot of people don't remember is that Nurgle, Zinch, Slanesh, Corn, those are faction mm-hmm. keywords. So you, yeah, you can totally build detachments around that, which is why you're able to build a, a plague burst crawler, you know, plague burst crawlers and bloat drones in there with Nurglings and Epidemius. And because Mortarian is a, in a super heavy auxiliary rather than just an auxiliary because they do specify or under the stratagem rules, if your army is battleforged and includes any death guard detachments, excluding auxiliary support detachments. Mm-hmm. So the minute you bring in Morty, you unlock the death guard stratagems. So he's kind of key to the whole enterprise. And he's the world's largest distraction current effects. <laughs> yeah. else because, he is totally yeah. that. <laughs> well, and- he's going to get shot at. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. He's going to be a main focal point for anything because if he gets into you, it's all over. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And he's way harder to kill than a Carnifex. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. Well, obviously. <laughs> well, and with this army too, it, it's going to be it's kind of the long stick point, right? It, if you get into it, great. You're going to have to do um, wounds galore to kill it because it's going to have disgustingly resilient all over the place and it's going to hit you back just as hard. So it, it, it's a long-term playing army. 
which helps it to anything that it wants to do, especially mm-hmm. like hold points or kill anything, uh, no matter what your objectives are. So either way you go. Right. Also, let's let's keep in mind, okay, this is uh, like the Plague Burst Crawlers. He's got those camped. He should keep those camped near the tree because he doesn't need the rain. He doesn't need to roll them close to use the Plague Burst Mortars. So now with that cover, they've got a two up armor save. <laughs> Technically, it's a one up, but it can never get that low. But if even if you have a minus one AP weapon, they still get a two up. Um, they've got disgustingly resilient that's just going to get better as Epidemius goes up in the tally. And you know, you have you know you have to get close to them to do damage. Oh wait, they've got dual plague spitters to overwatch you with. Yeah, I mean they're you're gonna have a bad time. So uh-huh. I mean those those two pieces right there are pretty nasty. And yeah, these things like the rest of the list, they'll yeah, whatever they get into will die. Which uh, now I mean, the, it's sad that the easiest thing to kill in this army is the troops, and the troops are the least important part of this, other than to camp yeah. objectives. If you happen to, be. but if you table your opponent turn two, that even that doesn't matter. So yeah, I mean, this is a really, I mean, it's a really, really good list, and I can understand being like, yeah, I use this list against a competitive player. I think I'm going to set it aside for now because yeah, it's <laughs> it's nasty, but yeah, if if you're wanting to do, I mean, and it's fluffy as hell. That's the other. I mean, there's nothing unfluffy about this list there's nothing unnarrative about it but i can definitely see if you're more a player who wants to play something that is not necessarily optimized but you know isn't just more for fun this would not be the list for you this is this is the this is this is the beat ass death guard list and it will definitely do that what i like about it too is that he said that one of the lists that he went up against was the uh well it was knight Night guard battery assassins instead of smash captains or something like that for the medalist. Mm-hmm. But if he's saying that, hey, a competitive player is playing it, you can only imagine that this net list rolled out and someone took it to heart. Um, knowing that the current meta has um, some counters, some hard counters to it, it helps knowing that. Right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it doesn't take away the fact that things need to change. However, it, you know, saying that this list is the win all lists kind of oh. thing and that's the only list that you can play, this proves that, you know, it can be done other ways. It's just you have to find that very specific case. Right, right. Yeah, you have to find, you know, you have to think of like to, to beat the meta, you have to look at the meta and figure out what tools do I need? Like, what are the things I'm likely to face? What tools do I need to deal with it? And this debt list definitely brings all of that. But it also happens to have the it also happens to have the tools to deal with most other things because a lot of things won't be able to put up with the damage this this list can put out. Really, I think if I was going to say there's a possible weakness to this list is it has a very small model count. It would mm-hmm. be very for it would be easy to tar pit some of this with large units. A horde army might I mean even with the mortal wound output that this army can put out, that's not enough to deal with a lot of units. Like, I'd be curious to see what, I mean, we don't, you know, we haven't seen exactly what they can do yet, but I'd be curious to see what like an orc arm, like a green tide orc army would do with this. Just because you could actually bury some of this under weight of numbers. And even with disgusting resilient, you'll start falling down. And I don't know if you'd be able to do enough, enough damage fast enough. Yeah. 
but you also run the the nice risk of um feeling every hit that you get dealt so if something dies you're gonna feel that a lot yes a lot more than some like the guard army where it's like oh i lost five guys oh well you know yeah you lose like if you lose mortarian early on this list is going to start feeling that pain really quickly if you lose the demon prince early on it's gonna really hurt and because of how few models you have and the fact that the strategy is rush them all forward depending on how you deploy you can also leave yourself very open to other deep strikers. If you don't get first turn for it, well, now it's not an issue. But even then, unless you leave some things held back and spread out, even second turn, somebody could deep strike stuff in and start causing problems. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the list is dependent, like the defense is dependent on having cover. Now, granted, you also have, again, disgusting and resilient and all, everything in here pretty much has an infold save. But if somebody has ways of ignoring cover or just has AP weapons that are low enough, you could definitely, you know, get work done against this list. So this is this list isn't, um, I mean, it's not, I wouldn't say it's the Uber list that will beat all things. There's a meta that will break this list too. It's just not what the current meta is. So, and of course that meta Absolutely. is, and that meta is going to shift again with, because this list, we received this prior to big FAQ too. Now, I don't think that list would change this a lot, although the change to the fly keyword would cut down on some of the effectiveness of the assault because mm-hmm. most of this assault can just skip screeners as of the time this was written. I think with having screeners to deal with, it, would, it wouldn't make this list less deadly, but it would blunt that, that Nurgle rush effect that this list has. And if you had to chew through... Um, like if you had to chew through screens of guardsmen or orcs or or knit like gaunts and stuff, the re- that would give the rest of the list the time to m- maybe focus far and like okay, Mortarian has to go down now. We're gonna focus on killing Mortarian, you know that kind of thing. You you could actually pull that off now. So it'd be I'd be interested in seeing how this list functions. But one thing this list is not because he's using so few stratagems, it's not reliant upon like a, a ba- battery of its own. It doesn't need it, which is, that's actually really cool to see too. I actually really like that because a lot of times I'm uh, playing like gray Knights or anything, you know, Eldar or something like that. You, you get CP starved really fast. And if you have no way of generating that, like having a guard battery equivalent, you really feel that pain of not being able to play those stratagems when you need to. Now you can be, you know, uh, make sure that you are not dependent on CPs as much. But knowing that there's armies out there that don't necessarily require it, uh, I know my game yesterday, like like Rob was mentioning, I played a uh, Nurgleist that's different than this one, but but similar in a few ways. He hardly ever used them. He, he was like, "Oh, I guess I'll spend a CP here and and maybe reroll this and whatever." And I had already burned through all of my command points, no problem by then. And he, you know, end of the game happens. He's like, ah, "I got like five left over, no big deal." but that's the thing like you don't uh it doesn't rely on making those really clutch rolls to get back command points every single time that you and your opponent get them the army is just synergetically really good from the start um which i think is a is a well-designed army yeah 
I mean, this is a list that also, you know, it it definitely combines the defense of just being very hard to kill with some very strong offensive punch and enough psychic ability out there to be able to go toe to toe with psychic powerful army. And you, this game, can, this army functions at every phase of the game, which that is also good to see. I mean, if you've got, uh, you know, you've got sh- you've got long range shooting that ignores line of sight, so you can deal with stuff that's hidden from you turn one. Um, you've got stuff that doesn't rely on uh, hit rolls so you can uh, ignore all the shenanigans of, oh, I'm minus one to hit. Well, I don't care. <laughs> so yeah, this, no, this is a, this, I like, I really do like this list. I, uh, Michael, this is, this is a good one. It's a shame you're going to be retiring it. I totally understand why, but you at least have this ready to go. And again, I don't, other than the change of the fly keyword, I don't think this list really changes at all with the new FAQ. I think it still functions just as nastily as it does now. Or as it did then. And if you have a list you would like us to, to review or a letter you want us to read on the air, a question for us or a correction for an error we've made, um, there's a number of ways you can uh, get a, get your mail to us. Uh, first is our email addresses. Our email addresses are our first names at preferredenemies.com. So Rob at, Kevin at, Dennis at, Richard at, preferredenemies.com. Um, Second is Facebook. We are at facebook.com slash preferred enemies. Uh, you can like us there. We post, uh, stuff we're working on, uh, pictures from events we attend, uh, new news from, uh, GW, stuff like that. So, uh, like us there. You can send us a message. Uh, third way is on Twitter. We are preferred, we are at preferred enemy singular on Twitter. Um, so you can either email us, message us on Facebook, send us a message via Twitter. Uh, we take all those, uh, compile them together into a list and read those on our next episode. Uh, also, we have a Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash preferred enemies. Uh, in fact, we are just finishing up dice orders this weekend for our, uh, for our Patreon family. Our first block of dice orders ends actually technically ended yesterday, I believe. So, uh, we'll be getting that order out to Chessick soon. So if you are a, uh, if you are a Patreon fan and, uh, order dice, we'll get those. We will keep you up to date as to when, how that order is being processed and when that's coming in. Uh, for everyone else, uh, we don't put any of our content behind a paywall, uh, just because we choose not to. Uh, all our shows will be free, but if you want to help support the show, which helps us, as I said earlier, uh, buy equipment, uh, and travel to events and pay for our hosting for our, our podcast, uh, basically it's just an online tip jar. Put in, if you want to help support us, even a buck a month, uh, a dollar a month, everybody puts in a dollar, it adds up and it's a great help. And so we do have one new patron. All our new patrons get shout outs on the show. So Dominic Schmidt is our, one of our new Patreon uh, supporters. So thank you, Dominic, for your support. And thank you, everyone else who helps support the show and keep us going. Um, so uh, we're going to go ahead and take a break. And Richard, do you have to go? Because you have a birthday party to attend. Yes, I do. I, I am going to go ahead and take off. It is, in fact, this is not just any birthday party. It is your birthday party. Yes. Happy birthday, Richard. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so, happy birthday. Thank so, you. so Richard will not be joining us for the second half of the show, unfortunately, but we wish him all the best for his birthday dinner tonight. Yes, I, I listen for I look forward to listening later and, and finding out all of Alex's wisdom on airbrushing because it has been a very long time since I have used my airbrush and I am probably going to need to use one soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hopefully you cleaned it before you put it away. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So uh, we'll go ahead and take a quick break for sponsor identification. When we come back, we're going to pick at Alex's brain about airbrushing. See you in a bit. 
Miniatures. We build them, we paint them, we love them. That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. And that's where Kara Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors, that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the Autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the battle mats from GameMat. Their professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a GameMat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding G-board portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back. Now it's time to dig into our main topic, which is Hobby 201 with Alex Hunt. Welcome back again, Alex. Our, uh, in fact, our paint, literally painting Poobah. Yay! Thank you, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yes, and the reason I say painting Poobah is that is Alex's handle on Instagram. So if you look for painting underscore Poobah, P-O-O-B-A-H, you will find his uh, painting Instagram and see all the stuff he's been working on, which is all fantastic. And uh, well, as you. Dave mentioned uh, on our last episode, you are a master of weathering as well. You you definitely know how to grunge something up. Well, I, I do give it a shot and uh, I try and try my best to make it look cool. And I do appreciate those kind words from you guys from last last episode. It, it made me blush at work. I instantly messaged Rob <laughs> and, and Dave to make sure that they knew that they made me a nearly cry at work just because i was i was taken aback for a moment hey, but um as i'm as i responded to you have earned every iota of that praise because you you have actively helped me become a better painter like you have you. like your advice and suggestions even like then the nights i had in the past like one of the things you you mentioned about them was there you've got all this n- empty space on like your shoulder pads you should add some decals so and then you explained to me the process of how to properly add decals so that and make sure that they look perfectly blended in that you don't see the decal border around them and such and i followed that advice and i got the result that i wanted from it so you know that was one of the things that helped me with that army so so i do i do really appreciate all the assistance that you like and you and i have like we've been exchanging tips and and sharing stuff back and forth for what a couple of years i mean pretty much since you and i won both painted prizes at renegade open 
Yeah, there's been an open uh, an open discussion between us for that. Has it been that long? It's been two Jeez. years. That's crazy. Um, the uh, a, a lot of the stuff too, and I'm really happy to always share the tips and tricks that I learned along the way because Lord knows that I've picked up tons of tips from others that uh, have come before me and you know after me even for for painting, and they'll toss out a little nugget and you try it out, and some things work and some things don't for you, but uh, you can always share it with someone that is learning or has is questioning like how do I do this or how do I do that or how do I get this effect and um, a lot of times it'll make make uh, uh, an entire person's how they paint something work better than even you could have imagined um, and so sharing those tips and tricks has always been uh, a pleasure of mine to make sure that I can <laughs> I can make sure someone's life is easier than mine figuring it out. <laughs> Well, like last time you were on, you mentioned the uh, the master's brush cleaner stuff. So I went mm-hmm. out and I picked some of that up. And that is that in and of itself has helped me paint so much better because my brushes are keeping cleaner and they're keeping sharper. And so like that, like just that one little tip was worth it. I mean, there was a whole bunch of great tips in that episode, but just something as simple as that has made my life much easier as a painter. And, and a lot of times. So I'm going to. Give you a little background. I'm I'm very self-taught with a lot of painting stuff. Uh, I walked into the painting and playing 40k and that kind of stuff very uh, in my college years, um, and got shoved a brush and a bunch of really old sticky paints that that were uh, you know someone else's second, third hand kind of thing. And I learned up from there. And eventually, my uh, my wife gave me uh, wife and best friend actually gave me a an airbrush for Christmas one year. Um, and I had no idea how to use it. Uh, no one around me used one. No one had any sort of clue. Uh, so I did a bunch of research online and figuring out what to purchase and what to use and what to do and you know everything from you know hey this is the thinner you should use no that thinner is terrible you should use water and going back and forth and ultimately I just I became self-taught and what I really wanted to do was share that with others so that they didn't have to go through the same process <laughs> of me watching every friggin' YouTube video on how to airbrush something and, and a lot of times that information has disseminated to those that I teach and uh, comes back around uh, even better. Um, so like, for example, Rob definitely shared, Hey, if you do uh, what was the, the flow or uh, the flow improver or th- it was thinning, priming. Yeah. Th- uh, thinning. Uh, it was th- thinning varnish. Oh yeah, that's right. Thinning varnish and just blew my mind. I went home, tried it immediately worked. And then, <laughs> uh, and then I had shared, Oh yeah, just throw some of this flow improver in with a, with priming and you should be fine. And you, you had mentioned that you had done it. And just, I, I remember sitting in my car, driving home from work, listening to the episode. And I just went, Oh my God, it worked. That's fantastic. I can't <laughs> believe it worked. Uh, you know, or you found the perfect formula for it. And I went home and immediately tried it. And I mentioned this before and it was just like, this is awesome. So having that kind of community and that kind of discussion really helps uh, spur on a lot of teaching um, because it's it's definitely a hobby that anybody can learn anything from, uh, no matter if you're walking in the door brand new or you've been doing it forever. It, you will learn something all the time. Um, and if you think that you're you're done learning, I can show you at least three different websites and pages on Cool Mini or not that you you will uh, start to think about it again. Well, and and I I've I remember when we went to uh, 
when we went to the last games day here in the US and uh, seeing like the Golden Demon Awards, like, you know, because we don't get to see those necessarily a lot stateside. So getting getting to see the art, the the models that people were bringing and it's really easy to get intimidated by the level of quality that that is there the the, the high level of of painting skill that's demonstrated and remembering that those people got to that point through years and years of practice and painting and trying techniques and sharing techniques and like even, you know, Duncan Rhodes, they've made sure to like post, this is the first model I ever painted and it looks like utter crap, <laughs> but it shows that you can get there from here. And we, and by, we get there by trying things out and then sharing them with people. And then getting, like you said, getting things shared back with us. So yeah, it's very important. And with something like the topic we're going to be discussing today, which is airbrushing, that is something that can be very intimidating because it's one thing to have, like, we understand brushes and paints from like kindergarten age. You know, we, we, you know, we get handed, you know, watercolor palettes or little bottles of temper paint when we're little kids. So we understand put paint on brush, put, you know, put brush in paint, put paint on model. It, now, granted, there's way more to it than that, and if we, rec- I highly recommend listening to our Hobby 101 episode, which I'll I'll link in the show notes to you know to see how much more there is, but how approachable all that is. But yeah, airbrushing is one of those things like you need special equipment for this. This is already intimidating, and that was one of the things that kind of frightened me away from it first because it's like, do I want to spend money on this equipment with n- having no idea what I'm doing? And so hopefully and- we can help people know what they're doing at least make educated decisions going into it oh yeah and and uh having the right tools equipment and things like that can can be as simple as just getting the starter stuff yes and then you know you can slowly upgrade from there which is the best part about it but if you don't know and you're intimidated by it you're you're never going to step into that that realm and um you know, I've heard everything from all, oh, you know, airbrushing that's cheating to, you know, uh, oh, you could, I could never do that. And it, there's a lot of stigmas around it too. Sometimes in, in the hobby community where it becomes difficult to sometimes start that conversation and, and go, Hey, you can actually do this. And this is really easy. And you should, oh, I could never do that. It's cheating. It, you know, it takes too much, so much money. And well, it, really it depends on how you approach it and look at it. And so that that's really anybody can do it. And and I know that I teach classes on it too, of just, Hey, how do you use an airbrush? How does it just barely get used and, you know, make sure you clean it. And, you know, as simple as, Hey, this is what the parts do. And this is how you break it down and put it back together. And and a lot of times that's the light bulb moment for people to see and, and get a handle on it. You know, it's like, this is a brush. This is how you use a brush. This is how you clean a brush. Same concept. Yeah. So I like, so I'm I'm gonna gonna give and I may I don't know if I mentioned this in the last hobby episode, but I'm gonna give my my personal where I started from and you are free to deride me and mock me as much as possible. <laughs> um so my starting point with airbrushing was actually the Citadel spray gun, you know, the little hand flamer and canned air. Oh man, that that brings me back right there. That's a scary place. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, in fact, I think, uh, Dennis's air- airbrush compressor just turned itself on briefly in protest. <laughs> so, uh, um, luckily you guys can't hear that. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's sitting under <laughs> the, too. it's sitting under the recording table and it just went brr, like growled at us for a second. Uh, but 
It shouldn't do that anymore. It's unplugged now. No, I turned it off. Oh, was it on the whole time? Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to do that. And we'll talk about that later, too. <laughs> um, I should I should probably listen to my own advice then, because I've kept mine on for the last two days. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, this has been on a couple of days. I keep forgetting, too. but it's under my desk. Yeah, mine, mine will, like, growl. Like, if I keep mine on, it'll, like... And it it's because it's a cheapy compressor. It'll, it'll like every few minutes it'll kind of go at me. But anyway, yeah, I use the the Citadel canned air and and hand flamer sprayer mostly to just base coat my towel, like my vehicles, because it did prov- as long as the pressure maintained, it provided a nice even layer. But oh, the thing like first of all, canned air is bad. Don't I mean just <laughs> just because if you've ever used like. Uh, canned air for like cleaning keyboard for example what happens when you spray that can for more than a couple of minutes the can starts to frost up and the the propellant actually cools to the point where because you know the the pressure change is causing some exothermic reactions that basically make it frost up and then it doesn't flow properly well the same thing happens with canned compressed air for airbrushing. So you've got pressure for a few minutes. And then like I saw suggestions of have a bucket of warm water that you put the can of air into to keep it warm longer. <laughs> yeah. So also the fun of learning, you know, my first airbrushing being with a siphon fed airbrush. Cause oh, from, yeah, well, me too. Cause from what I understand, those airbrushes were basically just cheap base, you know, cheap, simple, single action, siphon fed airbrushes. Like, I don't, I don't know if they even had like a, a, like they got the parts from some existing brand, but I don't know who. But, uh, but yeah, so technically I was using an airbrush, just not a good one in a good way. So, but using one to base coat is totally fine. It was just the airbrush I was using. So now that we have determined the the path, you and you'll note that they don't sell that sprayer anymore or the canned air. <laughs> they don't sell that tool. There's a good reason for that. But they sell airbrush paint, guys. They, Come on. Now they do sell airbrush paint, and I am on record as I like their airbrush paint because it is actually color matched with a lot of their other paints. So that really does help for doing touch ups. It is good stuff. But uh, although being in pots is also a bit of an annoyance, but what can you do? Um, all their paints and pots. Uh, so, so Alex, if somebody was going to start upon the path of airbrushing and they, like they know they, they want to do airbrushing because they've maybe watched a couple of videos and seen what people can do with it, or they're just like, I have a ton of models that I want to airbrush or that I want to prime or I want to do base colors on, and I really don't want to spend a lot of money on um, like cans of colored primer. Because those do get those special colored primers do get very expensive, whether you get them from Army Painter or GW. You know, I, w- I want to be able to get one piece of equipment that lets me just just take care of that. Where would you recommend somebody start? So, um, really, the the best place to start is um, I always recommend going to a it's the Masters Airbrush kit that you can buy on Amazon for like seventy eighty bucks. It comes with a compressor and a brush, and the brush is nothing special, but parts are dirt cheap everywhere for it. It it works just fine. It does a great job of giving you understanding the control and like how to build, you know, uh, um, how do I prime with it? How do I clean a thing? How do I 
um, you know, go through and, and put a base coat down. How do I do this and that? And, and it, it really gives you the opportunity to do something and have like an $80 buy-in. So for about the box of, you know, instead of buying another box of Halverins, you're going out and buying a airbrush kit and you're starting from there. And that could be as simple as, Hey, I'm grabbing, you know, the paint that I have from, you know, the GW pots and I'm sticking some water in it and I'm watching a couple of videos online. Fantastic. I can, I can now, you know, paint and prime and do things. And so that, that'll really get you going for like, you know, 80, hundred bucks, uh, maybe 120 after some extra little tools that you might need, like a, a, a stand and a spray, you know, uh, an area to spray your excess water and paint and a cleaning pot is what they call it. Um, maybe a couple brushes to, you know, hardwire brushes so that you can clean out the inside of things. Okay. You're set back, uh, you know, maybe a model or two from your normal hobby purchases. So it's, it's not like it's a huge endeavor once you put it into that, like that perspective and it'll, it'll greatly improve your, um, your hobbying experience. Now I'm not going to say, sit here and say, Hey, airbrushing is the end all be all of all hobby thing. If you don't do this, you know, get out, you noob. Uh, that's not at all what I'm getting at. It's, it is a step in a direction that you can take if you want. Otherwise I've seen some beautifully painted stuff without an ever touching the airbrush that, that is miles ahead of my kind of thing too. But an airbrush gives you the short, uh, you know, gives you a shortcut to, priming, basing, um, getting those things done in the middle of winter. If you're in the Midwest yes. or anywhere that's snow covered, uh, half the year. But, um, that, that's really the place that I, I kind of point to is, Hey, just buy this Amazon, um, you know, kit. I can even link it to you. Yeah. I've got, I've um, actually got it, got it here. Like if you search for master's airbrush kit on Google, this is the first link that shows up is the link to Amazon. It's seventy nine ninety six, So yeah, 80 bucks for the basic kit or for 120, they have a kit that has a fancier airbrush with a couple of needle options. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. Uh, a air, a compressor with a tank. So it'll hold pressure longer. Um, so, Actually, I would, I always uh, try and recommend there should be a hundred dollar one in there for the, with the, the master's airbrush G22. And that's the only, uh, that's the, the brush. And then it should have a compressor with a tank on it. Um, yeah, there's, a, there's one, it. a G, it's a G222 is the one oh, okay. I was looking at. Dual action airbrush pro set with tank compressor. It's 120. Oh, okay. E- either way, I always kind of point towards getting the one with the tank because you, if you use the one that's direct line, it will run and get super hot within a half an hour of use. And if you get the one that's a tank, you could use it for five, seven hours and it never gets anything above warm. Yeah, um, that's motor what, does. That's what I need to upgrade to. It does take up more, oh, more yeah. space because you know, the tank is, again, half as big as the, or like twice as big as the compressor. So Yeah, you're uh, the one thing, though, I actually had a conversation with this with Danny Holwerda the other the other day, and he was mentioning that when he upgraded, it was like whole, getting a whole new airbrush setup because he ha- was having consistent pressure. He wasn't having moisture in the line. He was having, you know, the air doesn't warm up because the the motor is hot. You know, it pressurizes the tank and then shuts off, and it, you know, it's just a bunch of boons that he was having from it. And uh, I was like, yeah, it's it's the best thing ever, because once you go there, you never go back. You never want to. <laughs> so it, it um, but 
you know, uh, so say eighty dollars, one hundred and twenty bucks. Uh, you're you're well on your way. You'll probably not replace that compressor for a very long time, if ever. If you get the one with the tank on it, so spending the extra money up front helps. Plus, it's it's usable with most other airbrushes, and you can get adapters for like a, a Badger because Badger uses a different size tube than like the Harder and Steinbecks or the Iowatas or Masters or whatever out there. So really, it just comes down to you know, spending that initial investment. But once you get there, that's, that's the big hurdle. Then it's all small little steps from there. Right. So, so you've got your stuff and what, you know, this, this particular kit uh, does come, both of these come with a gravity fed dual action airbrush. So let's uh, explain what that means and, and what the differences are. So, sure. So, um, so I'll, I'll sort of like, I mentioned that the Citadel spray gun was a siphon, siphon-fed single action. What that means is the paint was stored in a jar underneath the airbrush, and the airbrush basically had a tube that went into the paint, and then it used the change in air pressure to basically siphon that paint up the tube and into the airbrush. Um, And then single action refers to you pull the trigger, paint and air comes out. There's not a lot of fine control other than how, how hard you pull that trigger, but that's that's about it. It's it's almost kind of binary on off at that point. There's there's really not much fine control. This kit that you can get on Amazon is neither of those things. So you want to explain uh, gravity feed and dual dual action? Sure. So um, gravity fed means that there's a there's a pot in the top that is uh, feeding that um, paint mixture into like a reservoir that is going against the the needle inside um, and then the needle is is traveling down through the length of the body of the airbrush to the nozzle where it then mixes with air and then sprays out or it's getting picked up by the air and, and carried out of the airbrush um, so so the the gravity fed just means that there's a you know it's filling a reservoir in the top instead of siphoning it up um, the uh, double action means that Whenever you push down on the trigger, you'll have two two ways. It'll be a, like a rocking trigger. When you push down on the trigger, it will um, push air out. It won't release any paint or anything like that. It'll just push air out. So you can dry things. Um, you can you know push junk on your table around, whatever you want to <laughs> do with it. But it, it'll allow for you to to um, just get air, which is very useful uh, whenever you're airbrushing to to do a little bit of a layer and then and then stop and then just push air. Um, when you pull back on the trigger, um, so backwards as in you're, you're pulling your finger back, um, it will then uh, pull the needle back. And when the needle gets pulled back, it will give you more paint out the front because there's less resistance against the nozzle to let the paint go. When you do these in tandem, so when you push down on the, on the trigger and then pull back on the, no- or on the needle, you will get a basically a, a thin stream of paint all the way up to it's on full blast and you get all the paint everywhere forever. But it gives you a, a lot of control over the paint that you put through just as easily uh, as, you know, you can easily put down huge swaths of paint on something in almost no time. But that's what it does. That's that's the basics of, uh, of how an, air, uh, uh, an airbrush functions in that way. Right. And most people will definitely recommend going with gra- – you go gravity-fed. Um, one difference there is you don't have a separate glass pot you have to clean for paint. And also, uh, because of how the siphon action works, 
it's easy to get the paint low enough that there's not enough, there's no way to siphon it in. You'll actually waste paint that way. Or especially because a lot of times you're airbrushing at an angle. If the paint flows away from the, the plastic tube that's siphoning it up, then you're not going to get any paint anymore. So gravity fed, it's, you're depending on gravity. It's always going to fall down towards the, towards the airbrush. I've, I've used both and I would, Go with uh, gravity fed every time. Although, remember, every gravity fed should come with a little cup cover. You will definitely want to use that because uh, you will be working at angles where paint might splash out otherwise. So we've we've got our airbrush and our compressor. And I know there's a lot of different brands of airbrush, but is it all pretty much to taste? I mean, obviously, we're talking about like this master airbrush, which is kind of a generic brand. But is there, I mean, is there any brands that people should keep an eye out for? Uh, so it's kind of, you know, I, I taken it to cars. If you want to spend more money on a car, you know, you can get some more fancy doodads and whatnot with that. But with an airbrush, it, it comes down to somewhat personal taste, um, but also kind of the or, you know, the benefits and disadvantages to each brush, um, and what they kind of do. So you can, you can get as simple as going out and instead of buying the, the masters, you go out or the masters airbrush and you want to spend a little bit more on it, buy like an Iowata and, um, It'll give you, you know, the HPC is like one of the more recommended ones or the Badger Patriot 105 is another really uh, well-known brush. They're they're all going to do essentially the same thing that you want them to. What I find is that sometimes the more expensive the brush, the less parts that you actually have to take apart and clean, or there might be small differences between how parts are put together or you know, some things are all one piece instead of being three pieces, that kind of thing. I personally use a uh, Harder and Steinbeck Evolution AL Plus, so it's it's made of an aluminum. Uh, it's a very light brush. It's very versatile in, in how you can use it. It gives you like a pencil-thin line if you want it to. It can, you know, do a bunch of other stuff with it. But it's what I like about it is that it, it breaks down into like eight pieces total. Uh, it, it does not take a lot to clean or take apart. And I take apart my airbrush every time that I, um, that I'm done with it to make sure that's cleaned. And, um, you know, it, so whenever I pick it up the next time, it's, it's ready to go without much trouble. Now I know that there's some people that will probably cringe at that thought that I take apart my airbrush every time, but I, I found that that works for me a lot better. Some people, it doesn't, I know like, um, Kenny Boucher at next level painting, he does, He'll like take it apart most of the way and then put it in like a like a shot glass of, of cleaner um, and leave it there uh, so that it doesn't you know doesn't gum up but he can just pull it out next time and just use it but he he does it professionally and I'm just I'm just I'm just a filthy amateur uh, but but the the idea is that it, really when it comes down to what brush you want to use and how um, a lot of times it, it comes down to personal taste once you start getting past a certain um, dollar amount for the brush. And it's kind of like the difference between I'm going to buy a Citadel brush or, uh, you know, a Michael's, uh, you know, five pack for 10 cents kind of thing, or I'm going to buy a Windsor Newton series seven or a Raphael or a broken toad. You know, it's like once you start getting a little bit more expensive in the brush, you get a lot more options in what you want them to do. Uh, and it gives you that more, that ability to go, okay, what, what is exactly my taste and flavor in how I like to paint? 
Um, and that that's what it'll give you. They all function pretty much exactly the same. So your basics are, are never going to be different, but your uh, kind of fine tuned. Oh, I like it for this thing versus this versus, you know, I want this for base coding and this for really fine detail and this for, you know, um, my average kind of use, it kind of fits into taste. And there will be some people who do have multiple airbrushes all set for different jobs and will do like get a quick release valve so they can just swap between them easily. I actually recommend using a quick release valve no matter what, uh, because it makes it easy for there's been more times than I care to admit that I'll dump paint into my airbrush and like, you know, the top will come off and it'll just, you know, completely fill the reservoir or. Uh, it's not cleaned or it's it gummed up and I need to take it apart slightly so that I can, you know, get something apart and I need to stop the airflow. So it just makes it easy to actually do those things without uh, interrupting, you know, oh, your air supply. Your, there goes your compressor. Yeah, it's a noisy little thing. <laughs> um, but really, the, that's one of the things that I actually recommend using um, on a on a consistent basis, even if you don't have more than one airbrush. OK, so that that's something I will probably need to look at picking up. Um, the other thing, obviously, if you have an airbrush and you have a compressor, uh, and we're assuming you have models to paint, the, obviously the missing part of the equation here is paint. However, don't expect to just pour your Citadel like base or layer paints into your airbrush and have them work. They they won't because they're they're too thick. They won't aerosolize properly. So should should we look at getting different paints, or what can we do with our existing paints? What what, what do we get? Oh, how far the rabbit hole goes oh, on this yeah. subject. Uh, so um, now a lot of, as mentioned before, like Citadel makes airbrush paints that you don't need to thin. Um, and what that means is you don't have to take an existing paint and, and thin it down so that it can go through an airbrush because that's what you need to do to make it aerosolize. Otherwise, as Rob said, it's too thick. Um, the, the one thing that you can do is you can, you can buy paint. So you could buy the Citadel paints. You can buy, uh, there's a, there's a billion companies out there. There's Vallejo and Minotaur and, uh, um, trying to think of what else I have on my shelf that, that exists. There's a billion paints out there, companies that do it. Um, Reaper for one. Um, and as you all know, any companies that have and sell paints, they all have a different flavor to them or a different style or different opaqueness or different amount of pigment and yada, yada, yada. You know, the, the thing goes on and on and on. But to put it through an airbrush is actually fairly, fairly simple. Um, and you can use your existing paints, which is the really nice thing because I went into this thinking, oh man, I got to buy all new paints and I got to, I got to get, you know, fancier things and all these, these colors that I already bought all of, I need to replace all of these and yada, yada, yada. Um, one thing that I would definitely recommend doing is picking up, um, you know, you can go on eBay, you can go on, I think Amazon. Um, there's several places that you can go and get buy dropper bottles and put your like pot paints into those because they'll function all the same. And, and you can just, you know, take drops on, uh, you know, a palette or something else, or drop them onto a brush. I've done that plenty of times as well to, to do a quick and easy color um, painting on. But what it does is it gives you the ability to control how much paint you can put into your airbrush. And you can do so by counting the drops. Um, why that's important is uh, there, there's two things that you should buy alongside your normal paints. And I, I recommend two you can use, or so you need to thin your paint, as I mentioned before. Uh, and one of the things that you need to buy is airbrush thinner. And I always in, uh, I recommend doing a flow improver as well. 
So the thinner thins the paint down so that it doesn't lose its cohesive, um, um, coherency and, and lose its pigment. And whenever you add water to it, you'll notice that it'll just eventually kind of uh, become diluted and it won't actually have its color anymore. What a specific like airbrush thinner or paint thinner for that matter, um, it will actually hold that pigment color as it spreads out more. So it'll give you a thinning effect to your paint so it's not as thick, but it won't lose its color. What the flow improver does is it allows for you to have, um, it's like a drying retarder against uh, um, the paint drying in your brush itself. And so it doesn't clog up the nozzle needle combination or the tip of the brush so that you don't have to stop cleaning and clean it. And when you do clean it, it's less to clean. It allows for that paint to flow smoothly out without needing to dry on the brush when it immediately hits air and aerosolizes. Um, so the two that I use personally, I use Vallejo's, um, and, and for reference, for anybody that wants to know, that's spelled V-A-L-L-E-J-O. Um, you'll, um, you, you can find a big bottle of the stuff on Amazon. There's two. You can uh, buy Airbrush Thinner and Airbrush Flow Improver. And the combination that I like to use, or the just the kind of rule of thumb that I like to use when I, when I apply the paint in my airbrush, is 2-1-1. So it's two drops of paint to one drop of thinner to one drop of flow improver. And you can kind of, you know, mix and match and play around with whatever you want in that realm. But if you keep close to that ratio, it works really, really well. And you can throw most paints into that. That'll work for Vallejo's paints. It'll work for Citadel paints. Um, I've done it with um, uh, plenty of layer paints and base coat paints, um, stuff that has extra opaqueness. uh, So more pigment, it works just fine with. Uh, and you can you can kind of play around with it as well. Uh, another rule of thumb is whenever you're mixing paint around and it looks similar to uh, when it runs down the side of the side of the cup, if it looks like it's close to milk or like thick whole milk, that's kind of a, a good consistency point to jump in with as well. So it it I know that's probably a lot of information, but two one one with with paint to flow improver to thinner works very very well. Um, and you don't have to use those, those brands, those thinners, you know, um, you don't have to, if you don't want to experiment, find what works best for you. And that will really, uh, set you apart. Um, because some people, they, they hate it and they use water and they do amazing things with just water. And it blows my mind because I'm like, I cannot do that. How are you people? You're crazy. Some people add soap, like dish soap into theirs to, to break up the surface tension. I guess, yeah, I guess it would. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, when I was men- I was mentioning Rob this off the air, but like Flow Aid is just basically soap plus water in the right consistency or right ratios. But that's you know, if you can break the surface tension, it works really well. It it people do some crazy stuff with it. Windex people use Windex for for mm-hmm. thinner. Yeah, yeah so like I've heard like for like using like I always blew my mind that people would talk about using like was it Future Floor Polish or Floor Wax. Uh, as a yeah. as a thinner medium, yeah, it was crazy. Just the the weirdest things that people find to use for, um, you know, a thinner or a medium or something like that. Just it's crazy. So don't feel like you're you're you know it's dogmatic and oh Alex says you have to no just use something that works for you and works best for you and uh, experiment 
every once in a while. And you can always go to the hobby store if you can find it on or find it online. But I always recommend going to your friendly game store for it and see if you can find the stuff in just a small bottle and work with the small bottle stuff first. Um, and then if you want to pick it up on Amazon or pick it, you know, have your friendly, friendly local game store, pick it up the bigger, like 200 ounce or 200 milliliter bottles. And then that way you can just refill the small bottles. So that's the one benefit to using dropper bottles for everything is you can just refill the same dropper bottle over and over and over again. And you never have to worry about buying anything new in that case. Okay. So, uh, um, and then, uh, then comes the fun part, which is actually spraying the paint on, which, you know, the basic mechanics are you've got your brush clean, put together, ready to go. Uh, and also always, you know, consult the instructions on your brush on, on what all the parts are and how, how they go together. Get used to, to taking it apart and putting it back together. But, uh, you, assuming that you're going with a gravity fed, you've got your paint cup there at top. You, you pour your paint in. It's been properly thinned or it's, it's come pre-thinned. Now, this is the part where we crank the compressor on full blast and just spray it everywhere, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. You crank it to 11, you let loose, and, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, rock music plays in the background, and everything's glorious. Yeah, except not so much. <laughs> except not so much, yeah. Um, just to take a step back before I go on to this subject, um, you'll want to make sure – so I always recommend – and I know it sounds dumb, and I get laughed at every time, but uh, – I recommend taking apart and putting back together your airbrush if you're brand new to it uh, three or four times. Just dry. Just put it, take it apart, see where all the parts go, put it back together. Take it apart, put it back together. And then that way, what you'll, because you're going to probably be taking apart your airbrush all the time, or a lo- most of the time, um, you're going to be taking apart uh, it to clean it or to troubleshoot something or try and fix something. Um, it really is beneficial to know how everything works and goes together in that brush so that whenever you're in that panic mode moment, um, you know, with paint spewing everywhere, you actually know how the thing functions so that whenever you take it apart and put it back together, you know, Oh, Hey, this, this random piece here actually goes here. But for going back to the, to the subject at hand, whenever you want to use your airbrush, you'll want to actually put the PSI fairly low. I think on average, you want to stick it at around 15 to 20. If you're going up to 30, you'll want to be kind of careful on if that's going to work for you or not. The higher the pressure on the airbrush itself, uh, the more paint or the more air that moves through it, of course, but you also get less control overall with the paint that you're putting on the model. Say you want to put down a nice big base coat and you really don't care and you just need coverage. Hey, PSI of 30 might be great, but I want to do this fine detail where I, I, you know, I need to do this kind of filigree work and I want to kind of, you know, maybe give this small shade effect. Yeah, you're probably going to want to drop it down to about 15 to maybe 20 up up to that. Um, And that's really important. Also having a, uh, a regulator on there so you don't get moisture into the line is really important as well because you don't want that to mix in and kind of interrupt your or uh, <laughs> get mixed up in your paint yeah, because that most, can cause a lot of issues. And most compressors come with a regulator at this point. Yeah, it's very rare to find one. You can you can buy one to actually go on the end of your airbrush if, you're, if you live in that humid of an area. Um, but a lot of times the regulator that's sitting on your uh, on the compressor itself is going to be fine. Yeah, no. It, basically, what we're talking about, there will be a uh, component. Uh, for example, let's look at that that master's kit again. If you look at the compressor, there's like a 
piece looks like a black and red tube with a uh, pressure meter coming out the side and then like a clear plastic area underneath with like some gradation marks. And then the, the actual air hose comes out of that black plastic cylinder. That's the regulator. You turn that top knob to adjust your pressure level. And then that area underneath is a water trap. And there's the, uh, the little metal piece at the bottom is actually the release for any moisture you have in there. Yep. Yeah. You can actually take off that, uh, that clear plastic piece to it should unscrew. So if you need to clean that out to make sure that you get all the moisture out, you, you can do that as well. Yeah. But anyway, so, so somewhere between 15 to 20, some common things that like I've had, cause I'm still, I've still been experimenting with where the proper PSI is for what I want to do. And sometimes it has to do with like what paint I'm using and whether it's properly thinned or not, because it's easy to get too low a PSI and the, the paint won't flow properly because it's slightly too thick or I'll get uh, pulsing in my line or spatter. That's, that's a, a pain. Yeah, and, and a lot of times that kind of troubleshooting comes down to fine-tuning where you're, uh, like you said, where you're at with your brush, uh, the paint that you're using. Um, you know, it's kind of like using a, a brush in its, you know, how much water do I put in with this specific paint when I want to get this effect? It, it's very, you can you can very easily tie that over to airbrush and go, okay, well, I'm I'm trying to, you know, use the airbrush and I'm getting the spider web effect. Well, maybe it's too thin or maybe it's too thick or the air pressure is too high or, you know, and you can kind of adjust things small, you know, small things and get the result that you're looking for. But um, you need to know that those options are there. Right. And, and this is also something where I recommend like before you ever put brush to, or, you know, put paint on the model with the airbrush, just play around with the airbrush on like a piece of cardboard, even just a, a piece of paper. And just check how, like, what, like, distance to the object does to your spray, how, what the trigger, like, how the trigger action reacts and, and what kind of patterns and, and what level of paint you're getting. Cause it's real easy if you're not careful to, like, overpaint things with an airbrush, too. Just like it's really easy to apply too much paint at once with a bristle brush and, like, flood in details. You can do the same thing with an airbrush. Don't think that it's magic. Oh yeah. Uh, and, and something, again, something I always recommend whenever someone's starting out is using, uh, grab a piece of cardboard or cardboard box or, you know, the inside of a cereal box or whatever, and put water in the airbrush because you can't screw it up at that point. You can't, you can't not put water in the thing and toy around with how, uh, it affects, you know, how things affect. I think in the master's airbrush guide, they actually say, Hey, um, make like a grid of dots and then connect all the dots with lines. Um, just with water, write your name, you know, make faces, th- draw a star, you know, things like that. It, it sounds dumb, but once you start getting that kind of initial, hey, this is how, you know, when I hold the brush this way and I and I point it at this thing, oh, hey, suddenly I can get an idea of where my spray is going to go because there's nothing more annoying than like, hey, I'm going to paint this small little window and oh, it's off to the left a little bit and I just sprayed my base coat and oh, God, I have to do it all over again now <laughs> um, because it happens to all of us. So you just have to remember that having that finite control and learning how it functions initially does a lot for you even though it might be kind of silly to be like, well, I bought this airbrush. Why am I not putting paint through it? So there's nothing wrong with doing practice and even regularly practicing with, um, 
you know, testing things like you would uh, seeing how a new color works for a model or for something, you know, on a piece of plastic card or paper. Yeah. And like, even if you, let's say you change up paint brands because either you didn't like how the last one worked or there's a color that's not available in the, your current airbrush paint that you're like, Oh, Hey, I mostly use Citadel, but hell, here's this Viejo paint. Maybe do a test run on cardboard with that Viejo paint just to see how it behaves differently because it's the, it's, it's going to be a different thickness. It's going to be a different viscosity. You know, you're going to have to play around with it and get a feel for it and adjust your settings. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Other things you can do is like some airbrushes. Uh, like I, okay, so I use a, uh, a Badger Renegade Chrome. Um, one of the things it has on it is there's a dial on the back. And if you look at it, this, when you turn this dial, it actually moves a stopper forward, which will then adjust how far back you can pull the trigger, which that seems like kind of an advanced technique, but it's one of those things where maybe I don't want, if, if pulling all the way back releases as much as as much paint as possible to give me like a good solid base coat. If I'm just wanting to do like light gradient work, being able to dial that into a setting and knowing that I can't now I can't pull the brush any further back than that. So I have control over how, how hard I paint. That's really useful, but not every airbrush has that. So some of this is just going to have to be learned by like muscle memory. And, and it's funny that you should mention that because mine does not have that. Really? Um, no, it does not. So the normal evolution series actually does, but the the AL plus does not. Uh, the benefit to the AL plus is I'm allergic to nickel, so really the entire yeah the entire evolution is coated in nickel, and so if you try and use that for an extended period of time, my hand gets hives. So uh, it's bad. I can't wear watches either. It's really annoying. But yeah, the entire thing is made out of aluminum. So when I found that out, it it makes it all all the better. Uh, to be able to use it, but it does not have a lot of those little features like on the um, Infinity. They have a lot of little dials and things in the back so that you can really finely tune where it goes, or you can. Uh, there's like an adjustment on a lot of Badger series where it allow uh, on the bottom side it allow how much air actually goes into the nozzle assembly, so that you can you can really finite control how much air actually goes through it, even at full blast. Whenever you pull the push the trigger down, there's a ton of little little things that each airbrush may bring to the to the table that the other one doesn't have uh so it there's a lot of interesting little little tidbits there yeah because like um i think the first airbrush i got with uh like when i bought my starter set which uh, i think it came with a, a little a real basic uh posh airbrush i think it's the brand name and yeah yep. it, it doesn't have that dial at the end so yeah it, that is you know, when you get those features, you get really used to using them. It would be weird for me to go, like if I had to go, like if something happened to my Badger and I had to go back to my Posh, I could, but I'd have to teach myself how to kind of read, you know, it, it's not quite, it's got more finesse than like riding a bicycle. You know, it's like this one's going to behave a bit differently. So, so whatever you know with your existing airbrush, be ready to, I mean, obviously not learn from scratch. A lot of the same techniques will apply, but be ready to adjust your game plan a bit and, and go maybe read, you know, do that period where you're spraying water through it again, just to get the feel like, how is this one the same? How is this one different? So, I mean, obviously we've kind of covered the basics. Are there, how, how, I guess one good question would be to how, how are you using an airbrush in your regular painting? I mean, obviously you can, I mean, there's putting down base color, but obviously there's a lot more you can do with, with an airbrush. So a, a lot of things I'll do like, you know, I can, I can prime and I can do base coating, but I do a lot of things with it. I do detail work. 
all, um, you know, do on the fly, uh, blending. I will take it and, um, you know, I don't use it for everything because you still need to go back to a regular old brush. But in my, in, in my use case, I'll use it to do blending on colors or do fade effects or, um, some basic feathering, even down to, uh, you know, weathering, or shade or using like throwing a wash through it and making, you know, putting down a filter on a model so that the color slightly shifts depending on what I'm putting over it. Um, things like that, that really, I, I use it for a lot of things. Um, trying to think of anything specific that's, that's, uh, very different. And I can't think of one. Um, a lot of times the, the biggest benefits are, you know, priming, base coating and varnishing. Uh, those are the big ones that make it into the repertoire. But I, I personally use it like if I'm painting, I'm painting a bunch of nights right now. But if I'm painting a night, you know, I'll put down all the metal and then I'll do, uh, you know, all of the armor pieces and I'll base coat them. And, and then I might shade them and do, um, you know, glow effects with it. So uh, object source lighting on something or I'm going to do, um, you know, you can use it as as a thing to push around paint. So I've used it to push around back to like the weathering point, push around like weathering powders in a solution. So in water or something like, or alcohol, and I'll push it around a bit and give it kind of a weather beaten look. So, Hey, this area gets a lot of uh, wind over it because of re you know, it has a jet engine in front of it. Hey, I might actually put down like some, uh, you use black paint to give it some smoke effect. And I might put some rust effect under that, you know, um, that that gives me the ability to kind of sweep that rust away with an airbrush and use that that air. So it's real air hitting it and gives it a much more realistic effect rather than just me trying to imitate air. But you can do you can do some crazy stuff with it that I like to use, like uh, you know, do smoke effects or you know, you you guys were praising my weathering effects. It's it's all dumb, simple, easy. Uh, <laughs> tricks and tips. A lot of a lot of painting with weathering is cheating, and it's fantastic <laughs> amounts of fun. Everybody's like, "Oh, that looks fantastic!" And you're like, "Yeah, it took me the whole ten minutes." And so, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, the, the base code though, the base code took me hours, and yeah, no one notices that. Well, sometimes it's learning what that tip and trick is. Uh, but you can you can do a lot with a sponge and some some metal paint. But but the airbrush really gives you the ability to do fantastic blending really, really, really quickly or paint something very, very quickly without needing to pick up a brush and, you know, try and futz around with, oh, I'm going to try and make, you know, put down three coats to give it a nice base coat and then um, put, you know, another couple blendings on top of that. No, let me, let me, uh, you know, wash it. And by the time you're done doing that on one model, I've gotten, you know, 10, 15 done with an airbrush. That being said though, it, the, you still, you know, an airbrush does not help you put them together. So it's not the magic magic bullet that that some people like to um, think it is. Yeah, and like I like one thing I use my I, especially on larger models. It's a little bit harder with smaller models, uh, and it also depends on like depending on how far you go with it. it depends on like how you're applying your paints. But like uh, on larger models, especially ones that have musculature or obvious overhangs, I'll use it to like I'll put down a base color kind of all over and then I'll do a highlight color from an angle above and it lets me highlight the the high points and then let that under color still show through on the underside. 
Um, now, I know some people will even take that a step further and they'll like prime their models black and then they'll do, and it's called zenithal highlighting where they'll go like white or like light gray at like a, a 45 degree angle, like all the way around the model. But then to get that to really work, you have to apply then your paints as a glaze, which is something I haven't quite mastered yet. Well, and, and with that too, you can um, even using uh, zenithal or zenithal or whatever, I can't, I can't say words. Um, even using that effect where you're going, you're for those that are not initiated in that you're, you're, you're priming or you're painting the entire model one color and then you're doing a shade above that. So taking priming, for example, I might prime the entire model black and then I'll go from a 45 degree angle above the model and I'll paint, I'll, I'll prime it again with gray primer. And then I'll go like almost directly above the model with white primer and I will spray down on it so that it catches as if light was hitting that model from directly above it. So high noon sun uh, and what that'll do is it'll give you natural lighting effects without needing to really get fancy with it. And then you can play, as Rob said, you can play glazes over it and do all sorts of fun stuff. But you can do that with a normal color. Take green, take a dark green, a medium green, and a light green, and you can do the same effect. And suddenly you have this awesome looking uh, Dark Angel army that took almost no time at all to give you realistic lighting effects. And it's it's much more complicated than that whenever you start getting into detail work and things like that. But to get that base coat down, it lets you recapture the time that it takes to do anything else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, one thing you also mentioned, you know, priming and uh, and varnishing. Priming is really nice because you're not limited by the heat or humidity of the surrounding area. Uh, whether it's winter and it's too cold to prime because th- your paint will freeze as soon as it comes out of the spray can, or it's too humid and it's not going to adhere properly. Uh, I've had both situations. Neither of them are fun, and I have pretty much given up rattle cans for priming anything other than terrain that has like like MDF terrain where I don't need a a, a fine texture on on detail. I'm I'm good with, but everything else now I use an airbrush uh, for varnishing. I like it because it's not uh, it's not powered by like uh, a, a chemical propellant. Which, if you uh, like, especially let's say you have respiratory issues or you're really sensitive to chemicals. Like my wife has um, has bad asthma that can be triggered by chemical spray. So using like a can of Tester's Dull Coat is right out because it'll fill my my workspace with fumes. But uh, using a an acrylic-based varnish through an airbrush works great. And by working through an airbrush, I also don't leave brush strokes, which is nice. You know, so that is... Yeah. yeah. And, and actually, uh, you know, one, of, one of the things that was brought up to me regarding my nights at Iron Halo was, yeah, you got like this really smooth cream color on, on your arm. And that's really hard to do. And I was thinking, no, it's not. I used an airbrush for paint and varnish that's there's no brush strokes because there's no brush touching the paint and you're touching the model so i can't overemphasize how having that spray varnish helps you know it protects the models it makes them look smoother and not having to apply it with a brush because even just like applying a gloss coat for to put down like decals in certain areas you have to very carefully thin down your your paint on varnish because you'll leave brush strokes and you won't get that smooth coat that you need. So being able to spray anything is, is really nice for getting a smooth coverage and same thing with base coats, being able to get a nice smooth, even base coat 
on tanks and things like that saves so much time and, and looks really good. Oh, yeah. and it's very easy. The uh, so I we should have mentioned this at the fr- at the top. Uh, this is a health warning. Make uh, sure yes, that you yes. are spraying <laughs> spraying your airbrush and all paint in a well ventilated space that has you know movement of air. Otherwise, wear a mask. Uh, you can pick up like a I have a 3M mask that I use even with ventilation. Uh, or have a, uh, it's like a 3M nice painter's mask, um, you know, or have a spray booth or something along those lines because it is particulates and you are breathing them in. And even though they are non-toxic, it can be health hazardous down the line. So make sure that you are being smart about oh, that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I spray in a closed garage, uh, you know, like in the summer I can open it up, but in, in the winter, not so much. Uh, but yeah, I always wear a, a a paint mask and not just like a little paper mask. I get like the, the full plastic with like separate cartridges just mm-hmm. to make sure that I'm make sure that I've got a good seal around my face and that, uh, you know, I've got filters there to, to keep any paint out. Uh, but yeah, because you are, I mean, you're spraying, uh, you, like you said, you're spraying atomized paint in the air and you're going to breathe that in. And while again, while it's not fumey, it's still not good to breathe in paint. Is, you know, the only one that coats is the one you don't need in your lungs. So, yep. <laughs> and uh, another thing about that is when you're not spraying paint, one thing you're going to want to do, whether it's after you're done or between colors, is you're going to want to clean your airbrush. And you don't necessarily want to be breathing that cleanser either. No, not at all. I, I know for me, I, I use water and uh, like rubbing alcohol, isoprofenol alcohol. Yeah. Um, like 90% or something like that, which is, which is a little less, you know, I, I like to consider it a little less harmful, but still you don't want to be breathing that stuff. And even water vapor, you don't necessarily want to breathe in, in large amounts. Right. Uh, so it, it's just beneficial. Uh, you'll, you'll feel better. Uh, if you have been using an airbrush and haven't used a mask, you'll feel a hundred times better using it with a mask versus not. Uh, get one that does allow for you to breathe, like uh, like you were saying. Get one that that's not just paper because you'll suffocate. Um, you know, spend a little bit of extra cash on it and make sure that you get one that that you can use day in and day out for a while. Yeah. Um, other things that you like I said for cleaning. Also, something else you can I can recommend is uh, getting yourself a, a cleaning pot. Uh, there, usually you can get them really cheap alongside, like in a bundle. In fact, I'm looking at the the airbrush kit that we were talking about, and they have a frequently bought together bundle that includes the airbrush and and uh, you know compressor set, a bottle of Iwata airbrush cleaner, which is what I use, and and I just use that because I don't have to mix my own, and it it works great. It comes in uh, a you know bottle with an adjustable nozzle, and then a pot where basically you. It's got a little rubber receptacle for putting the tip of the airbrush in. Dennis is getting his out right now. And it's got a little fork for holding the airbrush and you just stick it in there and then run the uh run the airbrush until you've emptied out all the cleaner and then do that cycle it a couple of times until you're spraying clear basically. Uh yep. I highly recommend those. Again, they're not expensive. Uh and they cut they'll usually come with like a little pack of extra cuz there's a vent at the top. And there's a little uh, cloth or like felt filter, and they usually come with like a bag of about like five, like six or seven of them. 
Also, like you said, wire brushes. There's plenty of sets of like wire brushes of multiple sizes that you can get for cleaning airbrushes. And you will absolutely want to do that when, you know, it's, it's not just taking it apart. It's also like running the brush through and making sure that you've got a clean passage of air. I usually hold mine up to the light to make sure I'm seeing straight through. Yep. Because you can like, because it, it's weird, like you can move the needle in and out of the airbrush, but when you pull it back, sometimes paint will seal up behind it, and you won't, and suddenly it's like, wait a minute, I should be seeing light, and I can't see light. What is going on here? So, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, the the other thing that I always recommend getting because I didn't know about this for a while, uh, they actually make a small nozzle cleaner because your nozzle will uh, gunk up and uh, and it'll have um, crap in it. And it's a pain to try and clean out and you can't get a brush that's small enough to get in there. And, and it's eventually you'll just go mad. Um, but you can pick up this little, it's like 10 bucks, but it's a, it's a nozzle cleaner and it's like a, a needle that sits in a, like a brass container on one end is a, is a needle that sticks out and it has half of it like cut off. So, uh, it's a round needle, but half it's cut off. And then that way you can like go inside of your nozzle and scrape it, uh, in case there or scrape or dig or whatever into it. So that if you get something that's gunked up in there, you can actually get it out. And, you know, that extra piece of, um, paint or, or whatever that got caught in there or, or maybe a, a piece of hair fell in or, um, you know, Lord knows some dried paint has fallen in mine before. And, and suddenly, Oh no, it's, it's clogged up. And that's all you have to do is kind of, you know, work it out so that it's clean and uh that and the, like uh, if you want to spend a little bit of extra cash or you already have one in hand you may have one is an ultra um an ultrasonic cleaner uh just getting like a 30 dollar one 40 dollar one uh does wonders if you've if you've cleaned jewelry it's the same concept you throw it in there um a little bit of a airbrush cleaner and water and it'll you know take off paint that you thought was completely caked on there for a while for whatever reason it cleans it right up yeah that's that's one step i haven't taken but it's one of those things like yeah that that's kind of like next level gear you don't need that but it's it would be really cool to have oh yeah a lot of this stuff is is very basic like you don't need this but to to get going on this this whole you know extra level of hobby you don't have to get this stuff it's just a lot of times it's like, oh, here's a nice reason to have a thing rather than you need to have this. Uh, you know, to, to get started on airbrushing, you need the compressor and the airbrush. Everything else is optional after that. Uh, I've seen people, instead of getting the cleaning paint jars because they don't know about them, uh, I'll put mine down. They're like, what's that? And I go, oh, so you can clean up the airbrush. And they pull out a two-liter pot bottle. And they're like, this is what I use. And I'm like, you're crazy, dude. I don't even know how you do that. Uh, and I've seen I've seen it all. It's crazy. It's awesome. But uh, people will find if people have a will, there's a way. Um, but sometimes spending the extra little bit to to make sure that your hobby is easier uh, is worth its weight in gold, even if it's ten bucks. Yeah, a lot of these so, things are are they are quality of life enhancements for doing airbrushing. They're not necessarily uh, must haves. Uh, like one thing I remember hearing about this, and I've started using using it, and I I'm a big fan of it is. Uh, what they call needle juice, which is uh, Badger makes a brand called Red Gab, which happens to be Badger backwards if you like word puzzles. Um, but basically, it's it's oil that you uh, you can drip into the like drip alongside the needle. Like you take out the needle, 
I usually like drip one or two drops on the needle and let it run through, or you can drip it into the uh, the area where um, your trigger comes out so that it runs along the needle. Uh, you don't want to necessarily drip it into your paint reservoir because it will mix with the paint, which oil and water-based paint, not good. But um, basically it helps, loot as it, especially if you coat the needle with it, um, with a thin layer of it, so not enough to really mess with your paint, but it'll it'll help keep that needle lubricated so you're less likely to get paint gunking it up because, again, it's not going to want to adhere to that that needle. And that is one of those things where, like, if you don't want to necessarily do a full cleaning on your brush every time, um, usually most brushes, it's pretty easy to remove the needle, and you can just drip that down, slide it in, and it'll be ready to go for the next next session. Like, if you've just done, like, sprayed it sprayed it out and then treated the needle you a lot of times it can just help you if you have to do multiple sessions over a couple of days without having to do like a full take apart every time but but also like after you know after a few sessions i still always take my brush apart just because um because even with that you will still build up paint in weird spaces yeah and and uh i think it's uh rob from spiky bits always recommended using hobbs like a uh, a gun um, lubricant. I forget. It's, uh, I, if you have a rifle or you've ever used any sort of uh, gun for hunting, someone's probably got a little bottle of it. But it's an orange bottle called Hobbs Number no. Nine or whatever, and that stuff works just as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've found. Um, but yeah, I, I've heard good things about needle juice as well. Yeah, and as it's, it being a quality product. Yeah, and it, you're using like a drop or two of it at a time, so one bottle will last you a very long time. So it's not like yeah. You know, it's one of these things you'll buy it once and you'll use it probably for years. So, uh, yeah. And it's also not very expensive. And a lot of this stuff you can, like, you can buy on Amazon. Even replacement airbrush parts you can usually buy on Amazon. Uh, most airbrushes will have, like, breakdowns of all the part numbers. So you can look up parts that way. So if you ever have one common thing is, like, if you bend the tip of your needle accidentally by dropping your airbrush and it hits something and the needle was vaguely exposed and bends the tip of it. You can get replacement needles. You can get replacement nozzles. I've had to do both. Uh, well, I've never had to replace a needle, but I have had to replace a nozzle because um, I mean, took it apart badly, and I'm just, that's all <laughs> I'm going to say. But especially, okay. Well, I, what I will say is I couldn't figure out why the needle was coming out, and I thought it was completely gunked on. I'm like, fine, I'm just going to have to break this thing loose. You know, I'm going to figure out how to just, I'll just have to destroy the nozzle and order a new one because they're basically, they're tiny little pieces of brass. And after and I'm like, man, it's still not coming out. What is wrong? And then I realized I haven't loosened the right part yet. I needed to go one oh. level lower, loosen that piece, and then beep, this little damaged <laughs> piece of brass falls right out. I'm like, ah, well that 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 was a lesson that's going to cost me about ten fifteen bucks, and it did. And I'm not going to make that mistake again. So, <laughs> well, one thing that I will recommend is is for that point alone. It, buy a cheap airbrush like that G22. Like I said, it is like fifteen dollars. If I break that thing, who cares? You know, it, it's fifteen bucks down the drain. Um, I may or may not break it. I'll probably use it until it's dead, and I've gotten my use out of it. Right? I've gotten my money's worth out of it. However, what it does is it teaches you a lot about how the airbrush functions and how it works and why it works the way it does, and it gives you kind of I, I don't want to say respect, but an understanding of how it how the overall function works right in your case like how do i get the, the needle out because it's gunked up um 
before you go out and spend, you know, the $150, $300 on a, um, on an airbrush and go, I'm just going to go all in, you know, uh, just getting this, this brand new thing. And then you break it. And the, I know the, the nozzle on mine is like at least a $30 piece. Uh, a nozzle needle combo for a harder and Steinbeck is like 60 bucks. So it's, it's not cheap to replace, but if you don't know that suddenly you might be going through a couple and, and, uh, and that costs quite a bit of money. Yeah. It's like with brush with bristle brushes. Don't start painting with a Windsor Newton series seven, you know, don't, don't go out and buy the finest tool possible when you don't know how to take care of the basics or, you know, work with the basics because you will yep. end up frustrating yourself by messing up a really nice brush or, or two or four, or, you know, and then, yeah, it'll it'll put you off of wanting to do it ever again. So yeah, walk before you run. I, I'd say you know, especially with yeah. this kind of gear, it's probably your best bet. Um, you know, and it's not like the hobby's going to go anywhere anytime soon either. So it's not you know, if you're if you're going, oh man, I need to get this done like now. Um, it's not gonna it's not gonna help you any. Um, so it it's not again, it's not the magic bullet that some people make it out to be. No, no. And, and th- I mean, there's other other tricks and tips we could talk about, like, um, like obviously, you're spraying things, so you don't, de- unless you have, like, a really tightly dialed in and painting really close to the model, you don't necessarily have as much control uh, of paint dispersion as you might with a, a brush. So, like, I, a lot of times, especially if you've got a model where, it has like an arm reaching out that crosses over the torso, but you want to do something different color wise, but you don't want that color on the, you don't want even any overspray out of the torso. Just try to figure out how to work like a piece of paper behind the thing that you're working on. So the part you're wanting to paint, so you don't, uh, you know, overpaint because that's, that's very easy to do, especially if you're still learning your control. I know some, uh, I haven't even, I haven't even played around with like airbrush templates yet. I know that's a, there's a whole industry of those. Oh, the, the stuff from, uh, I'll, I'll do a shout out because I'm not ashamed to, uh, fallout hobbies has some fantastic stuff that they, uh, they have these vinyl based, uh, airbrush templates that you can actually put down and get like scales and, and like, you know, hex effects and, uh, you know, urban camo. I mean, stuff's endless. It's sweet. And they're, they're very affordable too, which makes it even better. But yeah, it, those kind of things are out there and crazy cool once you can get to use them. But yeah, th- that's definitely, again, more of an advanced topic of particular tricks you can do with an airbrush. But yeah, there's just, or, you know, masking off areas to do camo patterns or, you know, which you can do with like tape. Uh, try to get a, a blue painter's tape that be careful about what you get so it doesn't rip the paint off of the surface that you've taped onto. I've had that happen mm-hmm. a couple of times with a blue painter's tape that's just a bit too aggressive because it was maybe made for doing house paint. I will say one thing about that. Make sure that you, um, uh, if you're going to do that and tape off sections, make sure that you let your primer sit for at least 12 hours before you start doing that. Um, because there's been plenty of times where I'm like, oh, yeah, I got, I can sit down and paint. I'm going to prime, and I'm going to put down the base coat, and I'm going to put down tape, and then I'm going to do this color. And then I'm, oh, and then I just, it just all came up. Yep. I, I had that happen. A, I've had that happen a couple of times. So, yeah, you got to be just careful, yeah. especially with what tape you use. A, a, a tape that is overzealously adhesive will not be your friend. Yeah, I use, um, I've used, you know, like blue painter's tape's fantastic. 
make sure you get uh, they even have like the lighter tack stuff that I know that you were you were saying there's also like frog tape frog tape makes a great uh, painter's tape that that doesn't like to grip very much um, that I've used you know don't use uh, your scotch tape that's probably a bad call yeah. uh, masking tape's <laughs> not good duct tape definitely is not yeah. a good good plan <laughs> Um, Duct tape can do many things, but airbrush masking is not one of them. No, no. Otherwise, if there's an effect that you want to go for and it's just base uh, gray um, plastic, it does a fantastic job of that. I'm great at gray plastic. Well, except for the fact that it's gray plastic, but it always ends up with that weird mesh glue left over. So you still don't even get a smooth gray plastic. Look, it's it's all about that texture and that that style <laughs> choice, and uh, it might it might net you high scores at at, uh, at a tournament or two, depending <laughs> on what you're doing. I guess, I mean, I suppose. Uh, one thing I did want to bring up is kind of a maybe last bit is uh, not so much a, an individual like tool or or bit of knowledge, but more along the lines of technique. I know some people really love, you know, when they airbrush things, you end up with models that look airbrushed, if you know what I mean. They look like a Velvet Elvis, basically, you know, where the highlights are really, like, they, they really do that diffuse gradient buildup, and it's really light. Or they do the, the wep- like, glow effects on weapons, and it's really, like, an overglow. So everything, it, it, I mean, you know what I mean? It's like it quote-unquote, looks airbrushed. And is that, I mean, is that a style to be avoided or is to be embraced or like, or is it just a completely personal choice? Because I see a lot of, a lot of, like, especially, I want to say like pro-painting services where they'll do the, you know, they'll do a model and it'll have that very obvious airbrush look to it. And I'm wondering, is like, is that the style they're going for? Is that a side effect of, wanting to do highlights with airbrush and make and getting it done quickly. Hey, look, another, another rabbit hole. Yay. Okay. So, uh, really it, it comes down. So there's two sizes. One is there is making it look airbrush for being an airbrush. And, and I know that this is a, a trap that I fell in and a lot, a lot of artists when they get an airbrush suddenly it becomes a ton of power, right? It, it becomes this like, like, I can do anything with this and I can make it all look cool and it'll just be, you know, I can do all these things and, and you get excited and you can start going a little overboard. And what that does is it, it gives you that quote unquote airbrushed effect. A lot of times it happens with blue on a plasma weapon that just looks like it's on fire all the time forever. <laughs> um, and, and I remember going through a painting competition. Um, actually I think it was last year's renegade. And one of the judges was like, man, that is so obviously airbrushed. It hurts. And it was like, yeah, you're not wrong. You know, it was, it, and it wasn't anything against having something that was airbrushed. It was just, it was obviously done because it was quick, simple and fast to do without any sort of, forethought put into it. It's just, I'm going to put a glow effect down because it, it, it gives me extra points and that's all it's going to do, right? It, it didn't add to the model, so to speak. So that aside, it is, it, it's more of a personal preference. I know that like, uh, especially with, you know, anything with brush paint as well, airbrushing gives you the ability to do some cool, sweet, you know, contrasting shades. Like, like again, Kenny Boucher on Next Level of Painting, he does some amazing work that is very contrast heavy. That uh, you know, an '80s metal band would would weep over on how cool it looks for that 
for that quality. I myself am more of a person that does more realistic looking models. So that's my style. Um, do I think it's cool? Absolutely. Do I think that I would do it? Probably not. A lot of times subtle is more efficient than overdone. Um, you can dial things back easier with uh, doing it small to begin with and then go, mm, I want more because airbrushing does give you the ability that it gives you instantaneous results with very, very, very thin paint. So it's very easy to paint over. So even if you have a very bright color, sometimes it's really easy to just apply black, apply, you know, or apply a dark color over top of it and apply the color that you want over it again. And boom, it never existed in the first place because it's very thin paint and you don't lose detail. So on that subject, I would say it's definitely more of a stylistic choice unless you're lazy or you're brand new to it. And and I'm trying to straddle that line of not sounding insulting um, because it really is more style than anything. Um, some people really dig the super bright plasma glow and it, it looks awesome and or these super high contrasting colors that are super blended together and you can tell that it was airbrush. And that is very much so a stylistic choice. Uh, and some of the work that's done with it is beautiful. Absolutely awesome. But it, again, kind of back to your original point, how do people avoid that? You, you do less to begin with and you kind of build up towards it. So maybe you want to do that plasma glow weapon thing and you, you toss it out there and you go, Oh, fantastic. I'm going to do just a little bit and I'm going to give it a little bit of a glow. Okay. How does that look? All right. Well, I want it to be a little bit more than that. Okay. I'm going to add a bit more paint to it to see how big the coverage is or how, uh, another way to look at it is, um, how bright is my, like if you're doing a glow effect, how bright is this object? So is it, you know, um, is it the surface of the sun that's sitting in my hand kind of thing? Uh, and, and is it hitting my face and it's making my face like burn away from how bright it is? Or is it, you know, is it like a little auspex, uh, you know, it's got a green screen and it's just showing a very dim light. Like how bright is the object or the thing that you're looking at? Um, and you can kind of get a good idea of how much paint that you need to put down with an airbrush based on that. Um, and look at real world examples the best you can. And then that way it'll kind of gauge that, that feeling, um, for contrasting colors. And you're, and you're definitely wanting to not make it just look straight airbrushed, you know, building up, uh, gradients that kind of work together into that line. So it looks more brush controlled or maybe doing some, um, you know, wet blending between things on some other parts of the model might help, but really it, it just comes down to personal preference personal choice because not everybody. And that's the great thing about this hobby. Not everybody has the exact same opinions on the exact same things. And some people put out some beautiful work that I would never even consider doing because it's not my style. Mm -hmm. And that, that in it of itself is fantastic. I mean, Rob, you and I have had conversations in the past about, you know, weathering, Oh, heated discussions. Oh, yeah. Because you and I, because like I tend to make my stuff very clean. And if I do weather anything, it tends to be kind of minimal weather because I like the fresh to the battlefield look. You definitely prefer the been through the battlefield coming back for it for more. Yeah, I want it to be in in, you know, this is the 41st millennium for for God's sakes. I mean, I want I want hell on earth. I want to drop ship hitting the ground and I want, you know. You know, bullets everywhere and plasma and blah and mud and 
gunk and you know i want something that feels more real uh much more much less parade quality than maybe you do and that's not a bad thing now we can have a beer or two and argue about it all we want that sounds fantastic to me and we definitely will at renegade absolutely (laughs) my point is uh my point is more it, it definitely comes down to style and that is okay i would say if you're wanting to not make you know, from the overall thing, what to take away from this is if you don't want it to be that obvious, like person eye rolls and goes, yeah, they just use an airbrush because they had an airbrush. Uh, definitely put some forethought into what you're doing with it. Don't just throw blue on the back of an engine because it glows, right? Put some forethought into it. Give it some shading. Give it a highlight point on which the, the, the bright, white glow is coming from and it's giving off this blue from after that you know you want to give it more give it more forethought than just i'm going to slap it down so it looks cool you know um because that will give you more effect in later stages or when you're displaying your own work yeah and then just build up in layers so start subtle build up and then rather than try to start big and then have to like wear like do over yeah, exactly. Because that'll give you a much more uh, interesting thing to look at than just throwing down blue because it glows, or throwing down red because uh, you know because it's hot, or orange, or yellow, or anything like that. You you want to build up gradients. Maybe for the blue, you start out black or purple, and then you build towards this white hot point, um, and uh, that'll give you more of a um, a gradual effect. So it looks a little bit more controlled than just slapped on. Right. And I think that's one of the great things about airbrushing, even over like you can do some really good, like layering and wet blending and stuff with, uh, with a, a bristle brush, but it, it, it takes more time. It takes more, it, it takes a lot of fine control and it's, it can be tricky to do in, in subtle ways until you have a lot of practice and airbrush, does kind of give you a, a shortcut to a lot of that, but the side effect of that is, yeah, you want to you want to use that shortcut carefully and not just go a full ham on it. Yep, exactly, and that that's the big sticking point um, that someone that is curious about that would would probably need to look at is how do they want to do it? Don't go full ham. Don't give the full enchilada right away, and and build up towards it rather than. Uh, and it's never a bad thing to to start out with something minor and build up to something major too. So no one will fault you for that. Right, right. So because remember, this is this is still like intro to airbrushing. So yeah, you don't have to go crazy and do all the things that like even that we're talking about. If you're just like I said, if you just get an airbrush because like uh, I've got an entire you know platoons worth of guard vehicles that I, I need to get painted and I need, I want to get a good even base coat on them, but just do it in like a day. That is a perfectly fine use for an airbrush. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Or like I've got three nights and I want to paint them the same colors, but I really don't want to do, have to do brush work on all of them or my brush work. I'm still working on getting it even. So like, it doesn't look patchy. And airbrush is a perfectly good way to do that. You don't have to do the fancy effects. And as you get more comfortable with it, just like with a bristle brush, you'll you'll find more things you want to do, and you'll figure out your style with it. I know I'm like, and I'm I'm still figuring out my style. Like I've used an airbrush again, mostly for base coating. I'm just now really starting to 
use it to do like gradient effects and um, like I'm still even nervous about using it for like weapon glow effects and lighting effects because I don't want it to have that uh, super airbrush look. Also, I'm still working on getting my aim quite right because you don't actually have a brush touching the object. So trying to make sure I'm gauging everything properly, it's, it is something that just takes practice. Absolutely. And there's no harm in, in admitting that either. Lord knows that I still have, you know, practice that I do or techniques that I'm still struggling with myself. And it's never something that you're done learning with. Same with brushwork, you know, uh, a lot of times too, even with glow effects, it might be one of those where you struggle with, well, do I put one here or don't I, you know, do I make it look cool you know do i add that extra effect to make it look cooler does it detract from the overall look of the model and a lot of those things are really difficult struggles as a as a hobbyist and a painter that you have to kind of work through and um you know a lot of uh, i know um cheryl our friend cheryl uh she is still getting used to an airbrush as well and she just looks at me and goes how do you get that aim down you know how do you understand where where you're spraying uh, and can put it directly on there. It's like, well, it's just a lot of practice. And I know my brush well enough that if I do it with this specific brush, I know how, you know, how far back do I pull? How much do I push down to give me that direct effect on this point here that I'm pointing the brush at? That's, you know, 12 in, you know, six to 12 inches away from the model. You just get used to that, but it takes practice, a lot of practice. And there's really no harm in, in getting that, uh, admitting that and i think i don't think it's useful to sit there and go well um you know i know it all because it's not worthwhile right right you got to start somewhere and and i think that's that's the thing i'd like everyone to take away from this is that this is a thing that can seem it can seem intimidating i didn't want to do it for a long time because it's like airbrushing whoo that's that's like the next level and and I'm still, you know, working my way through it. I'm still learning it. I'm not going to consider, I, I don't, I would definitely would not consider myself even above airbrush amateur at this point. But, you know, it's life, there's enough good guides and hopefully we're providing some, you know, your, your knowledge of, of airbrush mastery and hopefully making, Hopefully, by the end of this, we've taken that edge off and been like, you can do this, and it doesn't have to be a big production. It doesn't have to be an expensive production, and you don't have to – you can build up to the fancy stuff later. Absolutely. That would be the number one takeaway that I have from this is is definitely don't be afraid of it and and dive in. You know, Again, the sky's the limit with this, but starting out small does not hurt. Even base coating and priming will get you more comfortable with it than not doing it at all. And – uh, that that's really what the learning is for. Right. And if that can help accelerate your hobby where like you take care of your, your priming and brushing or your priming and base coating, you know, in a day rather than several days, because now you're using an airbrush for it, it helps you like, and then you switch over to a brush for all the, you know, for to bristles for all the other stuff. You've already saved yourself time. You, and let's be, your time is worth something. So the money that you put into an airbrushing setup can actually make the rest of your hobby better, even if all you're doing is base coating. Oh yeah, and uh, I I know that uh, Kenny also says you know you don't 
you're not trading off the amount of time that you're working on a model. You're just shifting around the amount of time that you're using with it. So if you're using an airbrush to prime and base coat, you can use that extra time that you would normally not have to put into more detail or to put in decals or some cool new effects. You can suddenly, hey, I want to try out that freehand that I've never been able to do. Suddenly you might have time to do that because you save time by using an airbrush to do the heavy lifting portion of it rather than, you know, all the drudgery of using a brush to put down a base coat. Yeah, exactly. So hopefully everyone who's listening to this, you know, if it, if airbrushing has has been something that has appealed to you but you weren't sure how how to get started or maybe if it was something that you thought was just completely beyond you and you didn't know and understand how anybody could even possibly do this and what it took hopefully this this has knocked down some of those barriers and, and made it more accessible and again this is very much an intro level to airbrushing this is not and and as best we can do in an audio format obviously you know this is a format where you know this is a subject where being able to show you stuff would be far more useful but even just talking about this is something that yeah you know, Dennis is going through the the hand model portion of t- showing his airbrush and taking it apart and demonstrating all the components so that doesn't help our listeners at all unfortunately but so that's how I was helping prove your point yes exactly exactly so I I enjoyed it I enjoyed just hearing about it to be honest <laughs> that's that's just me so so Alex thank you so much for for joining us again uh, I think you're going to be yeah. I think you may be our regular hobby go-to guy for the podcast because oh, man. <laughs> yeah no pressure <laughs> Look, you might have to toss a toss another chair next to Dave Armand because uh, I, I like to harass him well enough. So if I can do it on the air with you guys, that's even better. I think we we can probably swing that. He still says mm-hmm. our jerseys are cursed, though. Well, yeah. Hey, I want I want a best of faction with mine. I don't know what you guys are talking about. He he's done things. He's up and coming here. Yeah. <laughs> Two and three, baby. Two and three. I still don't know how. I apparently painting was weighted was was scored quite heavily in that competition. So, and again, I have you to thank for encouraging me to to take my uh, model painting to the next level. So, Aww. hopefully, we can encourage our listeners the same way that you have encouraged me. So, um, you are you are one of my you are probably my favorite painting teacher. So, well, thank you. That's <laughs> that's awesome to hear because I have painting classes coming up and I'm still terrified of it. So. <laughs> well, maybe I'll sit in on one of them at uh, Renegade. You should do it. I keep harassing you to do it. Well, then, do I'm, it. then I'm going to do it. And, and that's and that's what we should say to our listeners is just go ahead and do it. You know, if, if airbrushing is something that has has intrigued you, just do it. Just go go for it. Listen to our tips. Read your manuals. Check out guides online and, and just, you know, do it. Don't be afraid of it. Mm-hmm. All right. And with that, I think it's uh, time for quick hobby progress. Uh, we don't have Richard here, unfortunately, since it is his birthday. But I know he he was building his uh, like the Night Gaunt model that he got for the 500th store opening celebration. Correct. So I don't know what else, and I don't know if he built the Primaris Lieutenant or not. No, he did not get that one done completed. Yeah, so he got it looked at, and he said, "Oh, here it is. It's on a screw." I imagine he is also working <laughs> on making sure he has stuff done for Renegade Open. Yes. So uh, so we will sweet. Yeah, so we'll assume that yes, he and, is going to be there. And, and rumor says it might be Grey Knights. Poor, poor bastard. Sounds like a bold face lie to me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So as for me, um, I've got Death Guard to start working on soon, but I wanted to finish up a couple of things that have been on my paint uh, table. So uh, only one of them is 
technically 40k related because one of them was painting up a uh, uh, a model for uh, a charity raffle at our at our one of our local stores, Peculiar Games and Hobby, is doing uh, miniature raffles all month for uh, collecting money for uh, breast cancer research. So uh, I painted up um, it's actually a Kickstarter exclusive model from uh, Bombshell Minis that I've I've had partially finished on my workbench for a couple of years now. So I went ahead and finally got that got that model done and sealed and and sent off. Uh, and then I've almost done, like, I'll be done with the basing probably tonight on my Raging Heroes avatar of Shaw, which is basically a not keeper of secrets. Except really, really tall. It, well, it's it's the size, uh, it's actually, I think, bigger than the official, like, Zerachnel. Yeah, it's bigger model. than Zerachnel, bigger than a Wraith Knight. Yeah, it's it's a good size Ooh. model. Yeah, she's she's big. That's one big lady. So, um, <laughs> and she is, uh, but, uh, she actually is a model that I, I I've used some of the techniques we talked about. Like I've done, like I did the, I I sprayed her like a darker purple and then did like lighter purple and then pink like air highlight level so that her like her chest and abs are high lit from above just with natural paint colors. Um, did gradients on because her arms like transform into like blade weapons and so i decided to go with bone on those to match the creature caster spider demon i painted so um so did like gradient effects with uh just again using uh let's see i used i used minotaur uh purple and i have to look up exactly which shade of purple i used but i used that for like the base coat and then just used a citadel uh air zandri dust for the the base bone color and then uh and one of the great thing is like once you get your like airbrush colors down, then after that it's like applying washes like normal, dry brushing, highlighting, all that stuff I've just been doing with normal brush. So you know that hasn't really changed that part of the process any. But uh, I even had had some fun like building up my bone color near the tips of the blades by uh, mixing Lamian medium and uh, Ushapti bone to make a bone glaze, so I could build up the kind of build up the gradients rather than risk getting like just straight line here is where bones start <laughs> i did not want i did not want that effect i wanted something more gradual as it went from like flesh to bone so uh, i'm pretty happy with how that's turned out so far so she's just about done and then after she's done it'll be moving on to getting death guard ready for renegade open and then uh uh not hobby related because i'll just be taking the army i took to iron halo but i'm going to be at uh midmo maelstrom in near columbia missouri in a couple of weeks to represent that's their first gt run by the forge world columbia crew so i'm going to show up and uh cover that event remotely so uh, i'm looking forward to that that one's going to be it's going to be a <laughs> drive because columbia is like an hour and a half away but it's still going to require an overnight stay to really be there in time so I didn't want to get a hotel room for Friday night also, so I'm leaving at like 5.30 in the morning to drive to Columbia because their check-ins from like 8 to 9. And it's a mm. it's a two to two and a half hour drive because it's actually, the event is like five to ten miles south of Columbia. So that'll be fun. I'll be exhausted that Saturday. But, <laughs> but at least, awesome. uh, they're, but they're also only doing five rounds, so I'll be driving back in the evening. So that'll be nice. Yeah. It's also the day that uh, daylight savings switches over. So Saturday, yeah, we fall back. So Saturday will be, or Sunday will be even earlier and weirder so, or later <laughs> and weirder. One of the two time, time does weird things around daylight savings. 
but uh so that that's it for me so um i've been doing more with the 3d printer uh trying to get more terrain and stuff and i'm gonna bring some of it uh back when i come home for renegade open but also amazon did a flash sale on another 3d printer so i bought a second one so i actually have two now that i'm working on uh cranking out terrain and stuff for so uh hopefully we'll have a, a wider variety of terrain at at our events going forward and hopefully some theme tables uh, as I'm trying to find like cool alien terrain and stuff like that to theme tables and make them uh, make them more, more consistent. So other than that, I've been kind of waiting on the uh, renegade open team tournament rules to be released, which they finally, which they finally were this weekend. So I'm basically building up my uh, world eaters army to take to pair with Rob's death guard to take to that. And then, also come up with a 1500 point variant for the friendly event, but that's going to require me painting about six or seven berserkers, finishing those up and, uh, and then just making sure I can pack them all. So they travel. Okay. I guess for me, I kind of took a break after iron halo and haven't done much because you remember all those primary space wolves and, and death watch. I said, I need to get together, right? I still need to get them all together. Yeah. You need to do that thing. <laughs> Well, at least as it gets cold, I mean, that's the best time to build because I'm not going to be priming anything. Right. Well, unless you have an airbrush that you could prime with right there, like that one, that one right there. (laughs) Shiny. In fact, I can show you how to do it. Well, maybe we'll get into that sometime in the winter. And Alex, since you are on the show, you want to tell us what you've been working on? How much time do we have left? Because Uh, I... uh... Try to keep keep it keep it keep it brief. My wife is already asking. My wife just sent me a message. Are you done yet? (laughs) So so under under an hour. Okay. All right. So um, let's see here. Right now, I'm finishing up a commission for seven nights. I'm actually working on the final night model. Um, it's spanned everything from Perfurion to a couple Serasis nights and a bunch of everything in between. Uh, I have two. Uh, nights that are going to be given away at the Renegade Open as uh, charity items. Um, so I, I'm working on those here this week uh, on getting them magnetized and painted up, and I'm really excited for those. Um, I have to paint a Mastodon for Quinn. He is uh, he was uh, not the winner last year for this uh, for the uh, Perfurian night that I painted up. Um, but he, he, uh, I made a deal with him to, to paint up, uh, the Mastodon for him. So I have that model in my, in my wings. I have a, uh, a Dorn, uh, a Rogel Dorn model that I need to paint up here soon before the end of the year here. Uh, and that is, I believe everything on my table up until the end of the year, it's been absolutely mad, but I've got a lot of models to finish. Oh God, why? (laughs) This is the life you chose, sir. This is the life you chose. I know. I'm. I am actually taking a year off commission work so I can work on the uh, the shelf of shame that I I know that I've <laughs> shared with Rob. Of I've got a boatload. Of, I've got an entire knight army sitting on a shelf that hasn't been touched. A bunch of Eldar models, Grey Knight models. And I've got I've got models for days that I have never touched because I haven't had time to. So you sound like so all of us. I'm going to take a, a year sabbatical and. Uh, hopefully rein in not saying yes to commission work for for a while uh so <laughs> yeah i, I entertain uh, doing commission work and i've done like one or like one-offs but um 
Yeah, I, I've looked at my show. Like, I have too much of my own backlog before I take on anybody else's stuff other than Kevin's. Like, I'm working on, you know, finishing up Kevin's town art. But mm. other than that, no, 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 no. <laughs> well, and I know uh, at one point I had said, oh, I'm, I'm going to be painting my my stuff until this date. Uh, it was for Midwest Conquest so that I could I could get an army ready to go because I didn't want to play Eldar. And they're like, oh, OK, when's the earliest that you can start working on this again? Uh uh, dude, it's like February, and that's in May. Yeah, I know. Oh God, no, no, why, no? <laughs> so, yeah, if you become a commission painter, you you sign your own death warrant to never work on your own stuff again. Yeah, yeah. Like one of the reasons I took Knights to Iron Halo was to justify the Renegade box that I already purchased because I I'm, I'm like I need to build these. This is a good excuse to do it. So I did it, and uh, oh, I, yeah. I, and I feel good about that. And so maybe my Death Guard, if I have time, will be an opportunity to get my Mortarian put together. Not that I'm necessarily going to use him, but it'll be an excuse to build to build him and paint. He him. is such a fun model. Oh, I've I, I've built and painted one. It just wasn't mine. So oh yeah, well, and I know uh, you know Puck last year running the Renegade. He he goes, well, you have like knights to spare, right? And I go, Puck, I, I've painted like. 20 some nights i own two (laughs) (laughs) he's like what do you mean i'm like i just painted for everybody else not for my own you know they they go on my shelf i look at them and i go that's nice and then they ship them out so it's you know but they are but they are fantastic well thank you and i like to think so my wife does too she's like that's a really pretty model is it yours no no it's not You're you're the commission painter who has the strangely bare IKEA shelves, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, there's the model that I painted back in 2012, and then that one that I painted last year. Yeah. <laughs> Yay! All right. And on that sad and sad note, <laughs> hey, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. So thank you for joining us for episode 183 again, Alex. Thank you very much for for joining us today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And at, like I said, Alex's work can be found at uh, Instagram.com slash painting underscore poobah. And we'll have links to that in the show notes. So from all of us here at Preferred Enemies, I'm Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And, and Richard. And Alex. And <laughs> good night, good gaming, and go ahead, get yourself an airbrush. Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2, No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.